Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast with myself, Byron Pace, and sitting beside me, my brother Daryl. This comes to you every two weeks, available on pretty much every platform you can think of, which includes iTunes, which is our most popular, SoundCloud, we have Stitcher for the Android users, and more recently, TuneIn Radio. So basically, there is no excuse not to listen to the show. Don't forget to follow us across our social media platforms, especially Facebook. There's a specific podcast Facebook page, Podcast Into the Wilderness. And also subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to watch any of this on YouTube. And we encourage you to at least have a look because we bring you, uh, for the most of our guests, videos of them actually doing the interviews, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we do. And they're all across the world. Loads of them. Mm. Now, we are not going to talk for very long at the start before this interview begins because, uh, firstly, it's already two hours long. And uh, secondly, it is the famous Donny Vincent. So I'm sure you'd all rather hear from him than us. But before we get there, we do need to announce the winner of the competition, which we started running three weeks ago. And that was to win a Bushnell HD trophy cam. Now, I have in front of me a list of people's names that I painstakingly went through all the different uh, posts that we put up and also on YouTube, all the various ways that you could enter the competition. I've written everybody's name down. And Daryl is and, now going to... And if you went more than... If you entered more than once, and obviously your name's been written down a few times. Yeah, because we said that you were allowed to do that yeah. for this one. So you, you, you potentially have triple To be chances. fair, um, barely anybody did that. Yeah, well, it's your <laughs> fault for uh, not putting yourself in three times. But anyway, I have a piece of paper. Daryl's going to r- randomly generate a number, and then I'm going to count through it and work out who's won. Randomly generate. I'm just using an app that is a random ge- generator. So if you actually want to see this, it is on yep. uh, YouTube, so you can see that we're doing this fairly. Right, generate. Uh, 13. 13. L- lucky One, or two, unlucky, three, number four, 13. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, then 12, 13. Peter Clayton. So, Peter Clayton, you have to contact us. So, message us on Facebook or email the show, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. And if you don't contact us in the next month, then... Yeah, then, when, then your prize yeah, is going to go somewhere else. We're, so, we're, yeah, but I'm sure you will because yeah. I think you're a regular listener because you, you comment a, to a, a lot of stuff on our social media feeds. So, And don't worry, guys, there is another competition running, but you have to listen to the end of the show to find yeah. out what it is. Right at the end of the show, we will tell you what you can win, and it's an awesome prize. Yep, as, as always. Without further ado, I think we should get on with the, the interview. Yep. Don't forget that this podcast is brought to you and supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. We were on their stand at the Northern Shooting Show just a week ago. Uh, Really great response there and great response to our series. On Friday, when are we releasing the next episode? I've just realized this is going out. This this week on Friday. Keep an eye out because episode two of our series Into the Wilderness is going to be available in the next couple of days. So definitely keep your eye out on social media for that feed on YouTube. Yep. And I think we're done. We're done. Yes. Enjoy. enjoy. Really enjoy the show because we did. Donnie, thank you so much for for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Uh, We um, when we first started uh, speaking with Kyle to try and uh, get you guys all teed up to get on the podcast, you were disappearing off to British Columbia to go and do something. I'm assuming hunting. He wouldn't tell us what. No, you're you're (laughs) now back from that. I don't know what you can tell us about what you were doing there, but did you have a good trip and anything you can tell us about that? 
Yeah, we had a really good trip. Um, and I was, uh, we were bow hunting black bears. Okay. Um, but we're putting together a huge film, uh, probably our biggest film to date. Uh, the one that I, you know, I just, we feel really, really good about it. And it's, it's coming together. Uh, all the principal factors of it are coming together to be even more sensational than we had anticipated. But this is a film we've been filming, we've been shooting for, uh, for three years now. Oh, wow. So, we went back to British Columbia to get some assets for that. And the trip went uh, really well. It was short. Um, and I don't like short trips. It was only seven days long. And uh, for me, that's really short. I like, I like much, much longer trips. I like my shortest trip to be about 10 days, 12 days. Um, but what I really like is going someplace for 20 days, 25 days, something like that. And, um, but the trip went really, really well. And um, probably the most... I had probably one of the most sensational interactions that I've had with wildlife in my entire life uh, on the very last day of that trip with a uh, pod uh, of killer whales and particularly a particular bull in that pod of killer whales. Oh, amazing. That's incredible. No, that's just... I saw you um, released a video not that long ago, just a short video where you were doing some fishing somewhere. Is that part of the same story? Um, that's a you, good you, were, you, had a, you had a giant prawn in your hand. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's part of the same story. That's the same place that we were at um, this time, but that was last year. Okay, okay. That was last year. So we went back to just get um, additional footage, things that we had missed last year, things that we had to fill some gaps, and then um, and then of course I was bear hunting. Like I I love hunting black bears, and so I was of course bear hunting. But and I did get we got. Um, 12 yards from one bear, we got 30 yards from another bear, 26 yards from another bear, and, and then about 50 yards from the last bear, but nothing was old enough to shoot. So. Oh, okay. It feels strange talking such small numbers. It you know, is. 20 we're, yards from this. Because we're, we're going to talk about this um, as, as we go on, but we there's no bow, bow hunting in the UK at all, and there's very little in Europe. So yeah. we all come from a background of rifle shooters. So Although I... I have in uh, recent years taken to shooting open sights, I guess, probably for the same reasons that you shoot a bow. And for same. me, it's just uh, it's just out of this world. And we've both had this discussion multiple times this year because uh, we've shot, uh, we've done a bit of traditional um, bow shooting in South Africa, yeah. shot just on targets because my cousin's a traditional bow shooter over there. And we've decided we just have to get a bow. It's, it's it happening. So it's going to happen at some point this year. <laughs> It's yeah. it's it's incredible, but that's that's great that you're you're shooting with iron sights. Right? I would yeah. do, I would do the same thing. I love rifle hunting. I love rifles. I love shooting. I just um, just being forced to get that much closer and have all the variables coming down to having to be perfect. Uh, it just fits my style. It just fits who I am as a hunter. Hmm. Just um, before we get really into that. A bit of background about yourself and where you start. I know from listening to uh, conversations you've had on other podcasts and stuff you've written on your blog, you have a background as a as a biologist. That was sort of your early years. Can you kind of talk us through that and how you got from that through to hunting and where you are today? Yeah, and I'll actually show you. And, and uh, obviously, uh, uh, I'm going to dive into my cell phone here because I actually just moved a photo onto my cell phone because uh, I talk about this significantly enough with uh, enough different people that I actually just snapped a couple of quick photos on my cell phone. Okay. Um, but really, um, I don't come from a hunting family at all. My father would do a little bit of hunting, uh, but really he had this um, magnificent collection of books 
most of them authored by Jack O'Connor. Yeah, the great Jack uh, O'Connor. Ri- yeah, written about all these amazing species in North America. And um, I have it here someplace. But um, I would read these books. And, and in addition to reading these books, I would um, this one book that I would read all the time, and I can't believe it's not in my office. I just moved it to my house because I was doing some work for our film. But um, with each chapter in this book, there's a painting um, showing the next animal that you're about to read about, kind of mm-hmm. showing a, a chapter. And so uh, it's photos like this. Can you guys see that? I can just see. I'll just tell you it. what you can do after like, after we're finished. If you can send the, those to us, we can yeah. maybe put them on screen for people to see a good but, version but of for our But for our YouTube listeners, they, they would have been able to, yeah. to see that. So. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, so it's, so it's, a, it's a painting of doll sheep. And, uh, of course, I really had no idea what a doll sheep was or what doll sheep hunting was all about. But since I was four, five, six, or seven, I can remember pouring through this book and and looking at the grizzly bears and doll sheep and stone sheep and Alaska Yukon moose and hmm. mountain goats, caribou, all these things. And it wasn't a question of well, what I was going to be when I got older. I, I never even thought about being, you know, a fireman or a police officer or, or even a scientist. I just wanted to go on adventures and not necessarily, I didn't know that I wanted to be a hunter yet. I had no idea what it meant to even be a hunter but I wanted to go to these places for these huge expeditions and have my rifle and just go about um, camping and living, you know, kind of like a Daniel Boone type lifestyle. I just wanted to kind of go into these wilderness areas, do these things. I didn't even realize that this costed money. You couldn't <laughs> just go and do it if you wanted to and um, all of these things. And then when I started getting into um, college age, I think like a lot of biologists that are also hunters – you just really sit down and, and dive deep into what's going to get me into the wilderness and spending time in the wilderness where I can make a little bit of time of money and a little bit of uh, a little bit of money and live where I want to live. So I started looking at wildlife biology because I thought, hey, if I can't afford to go doll sheep hunting, maybe I can study doll sheep and somebody will pay me yeah. <laughs> a dollar an hour to go study <laughs> doll sheep someplace. So that was my thinking. So that's you know. That's kind of how I got my start in, in moving into the wildlife round and how I got my start into filming and stuff is a, a completely different story. And the, when you did, uh, when you were involved in research as a biologist, you did some really long expeditions, a lot of them by yourself, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, most of them by myself. And, and I would often, like my longest ones were, um, you know, four or five different, five different years, four different years in Alaska, I would um, you know, they're five months long. So five months doesn't sound like that long. You know, a lot of guys are going, Oh my, I was doing research for years, but for five straight months, I was living in a single person North face tent, Hmm. you know? So it was just me often by myself, sometimes with one or two other Eskimo guys, not other Eskimo guys. I'm not Eskimo, but with one or two other Eskimos that were, um, helping me with the project. Cause it was a, it was a co-op project between the U S fish and wildlife service and, and this native corporation that actually, uh, this the the land on this river belonged to them. Amazing, amazing. But yeah, five months in a tent. You really. I you mean, figure you, you out say you say you, you say some people don't say five months is a long time, but it, it is at the end of the day. I mean, my deployments used to be seven months, and it felt like three years sometimes. I mean, obviously a different situation, but yeah, um, yeah. being alone that is a big thing. That is, uh, I th- I don't think people estimate how tough it can be at sometimes being alone for extended periods of time which yeah uh, your your mind 
is incredible, right? You you need nothing else to create your own horror film than your mind when you're laying in a tent in the middle of the wilderness by yourself. And because I'm a mega genius, I watched the Blair Witch Project <laughs> the night before I left on this trip. So I was like, yeah. Yay. That's like watching Predator or, you or Jurassic Park or something before you disappear and you honestly believe there is dinosaurs out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, it was, it was something that it, it, in the first couple of weeks you just kind of take a deep breath and you had to harness being there, and then after that you start to really appreciate, you know, the Northern Lights. Uh, the second summer I was up there, I was fortunate enough to live with a pack of wolves for about. Um, eight or nine weeks, and in uh, the grizzly bears, and and you know the fish, and watching the fish return, and the eagles, and you just kind of start to watch this ecosystem. I suppose be you become part flat. of it almost. Go ahead. You go ahead. you become part of it almost at, at that level. Yeah, yeah. You, you you start out, and it's quiet when you get there, and it comes to life with the fish, and then as the fish die, it falls quiet again, and then and then you move on. This might be a really stupid question, but were you armed? all the time that you were doing those research projects? Yes, but I used to get in trouble often because uh, they issue you either a uh, pump gauge, a pump 12-gauge shotgun, a uh, 458 Winchester bolt-action rifle, or a 375 H&H bolt-action rifle. And you, get to, you have to uh, pass an exam where they charge a paper bear at you on, on a cable system yeah. and you have to sit there and shoot this thing three times all the all the biologists out there that have passed this test are giggling right now but yeah you have to pass this test which is um believe it or not a paper bear can get your heart rate up when you're taking this test but um so i would have a 12 gauge shotgun with me at all times but i used to get in trouble all the time because i'd never carry the thing ever and, and sometimes when the eskimo guys would talk to my boss they'd say hey he never carries his gun so what, why? I mean, what, what was the reason? Did you just feel like because you were kind of so part of it that you just wanted to experience it just with your hands as opposed to having a gun or is it because it would change the way that you were interacting? No, I was just um, lazy and I wasn't afraid <laughs> of anything. So, yeah, it was it was it was either grab my fly rod and my gun and go fishing or just grab the fly rod and assume and hope nothing was going to happen. And, and, and I've been charged a few times and, and, uh, luckily all the bears have stopped and wolves. Uh, I know a lot of people fear wolves, but there's absolutely nothing to fear with wolves. I've had, you know, I've had one, um, kind of nervous interaction with wolves a little bit. You guys saw it in who we are, yes, that little yeah, short in who yeah, we yeah. are. We got surrounded by a pack of wolves. It, 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 the only thing that made me nervous there, I wasn't nervous for my life. I was nervous that the wolves were going to make a bad decision because they were they were very much communicating and very much moving it around me within 20 yards. And so that kind of broke that barrier of they could move faster than I could react once they were in 20 yards, especially when there's four, five, six, seven of them. And they were um, so, uh, yeah, I just it's not that I was um, unaware of the challenges or the dangers that I could potentially face by not carrying a gun. It just I just never did. And and. I mean, I, I've hunted the Arctic Circle um, probably four or five times now, and I, I've never even carried a gun. It's just I just went up there by myself with a bow. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's uh, it, you know it's something that we don't we don't have here. That it's that extra aspect of sometimes you might be the thing that's being hunted. I mean, I I, I have a 
some experience of it because I do a lot of hunting in Africa just because I've got I've got family there. So obviously there's a whole spectrum of things that want to eat you over there. Uh, but yeah, all... that's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the the North America is something I haven't I haven't experienced, and uh, I, I know it from from books and, and reading as obviously is how what originally ignited your interest to hunt in the first place. Yeah, and and I know I have had some friends that have had. Um, you know, where they've had to shoot brown bears or grizzly bears dead at their feet. Um, and, and they, you know, they tell me really quickly, if you have one of these instances, you're going to change your tune. And, and, it, and I've actually been the last couple of trips because I've, I've traveled with a group of guys because I were traveling with the crew. I brought a gun because, um, I didn't one year with Kyle, the, the gentleman you've been speaking with. So him and I flew up to the Arctic circle for, 20 days one time, me, him, and William Altman, our lead photographer. And Kyle said, hey, man, will you bring a gun on this trip? And I said, yes, <laughs> yep, I'll bring a gun. I, and uh, dare I say, I said, I promise, I'll bring a gun. And then as the trip got closer, I said, I really don't want to bring a gun. Um, can I just bring uh, bear spray? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, at least just bring bear spray, like a couple of cans, so like there can be one in camp and I can carry one. I said, great. I said, but just so you know, I've never even seen grizzly bears where we're going. I've been up there a number of times. I've seen bear tracks, and very often I see fresh bear tracks in the morning, but I've never seen them hunting. And uh, lo and behold, I didn't bring pepper spray or a gun, and I didn't tell him that until we were already there. And we ended up seeing 19 grizzlies in 14 days, including a sow with triplets, we bumped into her three different times, and once uh, was at like 25 or 30 yards. But she was a really good mom. She always made the right decision. We made our presence known as um, unintimidating and as intimidating as we possibly could, just saying, hey, Bear, you know what's going on? And she would always take her cubs and flee. So after that trip, because I thought, my God, if she actually would have come with her three three-year-old cubs. So that's like four full-size grizzly bears attacking at once three guys that only have a bow and a bunch of cameras so i thought okay from now on with the crew i'm gonna bring a gun and so the last couple of years um i brought a gun just just out of interest what does the pepper spray do to them does it just make them more angry or does it actually deter them it um and a lot of people misuse pepper spray basically you use pepper spray almost when the bear is on top of you right it's when you're dumping that a lot of people make the mistake of shooting the pepper spray 20 and 30 yards no pepper spray is designed for feet Mm -hmm. like he's got to be in your wheelhouse you got to be jamming that thing and it's basically like mace right you're covering his his or her mucous membranes her eyes and mouth with the most heinous burning (laughs) sensation in the world to where even if she wants to continue to attack she can't see like you completely debilitate them but like i said most people get nervous and they spray them way too early and then you and the bear just watch this beautiful mist just float away and then all of your horrors and terrors come true. <laughs> You've experienced it, haven't you, Dale? I, I, I've, well, I've been gassed, yeah, and it's disgusting. <laughs> I thought you meant attacked by a bear. No, 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 no not being attacked by a bear, no. No, being at the receiving end of the... Of, oh. of mace yeah when i was in the the military yeah you, you they tested uh well they didn't test gas on us <laughs> they, they we were gassed and yeah it's, it's disgusting it's horrible 
horrible, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't, yeah, like you I, just said, you can't see, your eyes are streaming, your nose is streaming, and you just want to feel like you want to rip your face off. That's the, that's the end of the... <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think you're supposed to give the bear the very same sensation. Mm. Yeah, but I've never, um, I've never really carried it. I've never, uh, it does make me feel better with the crew now to have a 12-gauge in the tent. We always carry a, like a Remington 870 12-gauge with an extended tube underneath. The magazine is full of shotgun shells. And then we keep uh, the the receiver empty. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, I, I'm I'm wouldn't be surprised if the the crew doesn't trust you to bring it with. Um, do they do they double check before you get on the plane? <laughs> now they do. Yeah, now they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For the guys over here, I mean, most of the guys and girls, uh, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are from the UK, although we do have all around the world. We've actually got quite a lot of American listeners. So got this, quite a few New Zealand. Yeah, New a lot, lot of New well. Zealanders now. Um, so this oh, yeah. might not apply to them so much because they will know about bow hunting. But for the guys here who uh, have never experienced it and because we just, we just simply can't here, can you just try and sort of talk through the sensation of that compared to shooting with a rifle, which you've obviously also done, and then mm-hmm. maybe just go into a little bit more depth about why that's where you've sort of channeled your energy with regard to hunting? It's mm. a really good question and not one that I've ever been asked before. So that's... Uh... Um, the biggest difference is, uh, everything has to be perfect. You have the, obviously you're crawling up. Um, generally you're going through some sort of, you're either in an ambush, uh, location where animals naturally pass, or you found an animal from afar and you're crawling up to them. You're getting the wind in your face. Uh, you spend very much time with the bow hunter and you hear them talk all the time about having the wind in their face because people, we, we obviously stink and there's a bunch of products out there. Uh, none of them work. So don't <laughs> so you can save your money. Uh, there's a bunch of products out there to try to remove the scent from your clothing and remove the scent from you. And, and you can just, you've heard it from Donnie Vincent. There you go. Yeah. I've always, to be honest, I've always wondered about that. Yeah, um, none of it works. Just okay, don't yeah. wash. That, I was it, just told, just don't wash. Yes, you. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's you. You might as well do the same thing. But yeah. um, uh, but we uh, so it's just about watching the animal, watching them feed, watching their eyes, their breathing, watching their ears. These are things that oftentimes the rifle hunter doesn't get to enjoy because we have to use those cues, their biology, to crawl close enough. Once you're close enough. You have to go through this decision of when to draw your bow. When you're when you're rifle hunting, you can just click your safety off, and you can slowly move into position and then execute your shot. With a bow, because it takes so such a big muscle group to come to full draw, you have to pick that time perfectly, and you have to have your bow set up perfectly with with how your muscles work to be able to come to full draw without getting busted get to that point, anchor and settle down. And then you have these components of, if you're a traditional archer, it's holding that massive weight, picking your spot and quote unquote, throwing the baseball, if you will, mm-hmm. to have that arrow hit the spot. And those guys are getting very close. Uh, they're fantastic hunters. With a, being a compound shooter, you're matching up that little circle in front of your eye called a peep, looking at a little pin that's on your bow, lining that all up with the animal and then executing a clean shot that remains all of these constants stay the same so that your arrow flies in a sincere fashion. And one of the uh, most beautiful things about shooting an animal with a bow is they generally don't leave the scene so afraid, right? When a rifle goes off, there's a loud boom, 
There's, if the bullet hits them, there's a big impact. Uh, bullets kill with shock. It's a tremendous event that happens, and the animal goes through this. But when you execute a shot with a bow and the animal doesn't know you're there, that arrow, um, especially like the arrows that I use are very heavy, very sharp scalpel-like broadheads. They go zipping right through the animal. Oftentimes, the animal will run 20, 30 yards, stop, and is looking around, looking left and right like, I know something happened, but I don't know exactly what happened. And very often, right there where they stop, they tip over. Hmm. And so it's, 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 it's where bullets hit, they break bone, tear tissue, break ribs, tear lung tissue. Arrows go through like a scalpel blade. And so um, obviously, I've never been shot for an, by an arrow. I'm not going to contend that I know what it feels like. But I would surmise that an arrow has a lot less pain than than a bullet. We both, we all know what it's like to hit our finger with a hammer. We also all know what it's like to slice our finger with a very sharp knife. You almost don't even know you sliced it until the blood starts coming out. Yeah, true. You're like, oh, holy crap, I sliced my finger. And so I can only imagine that that may be what it's like. Um, and, and then to have them just tip over and everything's quiet. There's, there's, there's no shock. You're, it's, it's just such a serene feeling. And I know in certain countries, it's illegal because I think people, game managers, feel like it's not as lethal um, a means. But I can tell you this. I, in, in my heart of hearts, I believe it's even more of a lethal means because um, it, take, it just takes a lot more precision. And the arrows can do a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, amount of damage. Last spring, I shot a seven-foot black bear in British Columbia, the trip that we just returned from. And the bear died. Uh, you'll see it in our next film. But the bear died in like five seconds. Wow. And uh, it's it, they're just very, very, very damaging, and and um, it's a really there's a purity to watching the animal, learning the animal, getting into position, executing your shot, and then watching it kind of tip over in this. You know, I'm not going to say it's peaceful, but it's as peaceful as that event can be. No, it's it's interesting you hearing hearing you talk about it. We did an interview with uh, David Carson Peterson, who's a friend of mine from from Denmark who is a bow hunter, and I asked him a kind of similar question about why he does it, because he does a lot of rifle shooting as well, and he was just explaining the sort of heightened sense of it, and it is, yeah, it, it, it was probably actually that interview that made us both think, you know what, we, we really need to, we need to be part of this, because it just, it just sounds yeah, incredible. Explaining the extra challenge, you know, the next step, I think, you know. But he was saying that, and I think this certainly rings true, that where. Where the hunt ends for a rifle hunter, the hunt for a bow hunter starts. Oh, what, without a doubt. Probably, probably my greatest bow kill, um, the one that's most sensational in my heart, is a stone sheep that I arrowed in British Columbia several years ago. And, it, you know, it took me a good part of the day to get into position. I mean, it, uh, the stock took me like nine or ten hours, and I had to sit within, I shot that animal at 49 yards. I had to sit within 49 yards of that sheep for like two or three hours waiting for him to stand up and turn broadside. And at any point in that, I could have shot him with a gun, no problem. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. I mean, there, there will always be um, people, non-hunters and hunters and rifle hunters in that group, that will still kind of see it as not as ethical because it's not as uh, not as quick. Well, that's the perception anyway. And I perception. know that in, uh, in your film, Rivers Divide, uh, which... It is just a superb piece of cinematography and story. Um, I mean, going back to Thank what you. you were saying earlier about how long you filmed the, your current film over and that one, I mean, that doesn't get 
doesn't really get done, you know, going back and the story continuing over years. But you ha- you took a shot in there, which didn't go to plan. And I, you know, I really commend you for telling the story as it happened. I think they're not there are people out there, there are um, you know, people with, with sort of public profile who maybe wouldn't, wouldn't have shown that or wouldn't have wanted to show that. And, I mean, it's certainly been our point of view that if to, win, ha- yeah. Yeah, to win, win over those people who are critical of, of hunters, you have to be honest. And, and, tell, to, and show the, the, the real story yeah, behind real it. Story. <laughs> and show the emotion. You show which, your failures yeah, as well. <laughs> which you, you know, clearly did in there. I mean, if you can, maybe for those people who haven't seen the film, we're going to put the, the, the links to your trailers in, um, in the podcast description. But just talk through that particular hunt and what went wrong there and then what eventually went right. Um, yes, I think I agree with you guys that I think more often than not, people um, in front of the camera... They they want to seem and I and I don't I don't quite understand this other than to build yourself up but people want to seem infallible, mm-hmm. right? They want to seem just because I have a TV show or just because I do put together um, adventure films or hunting films just because I do this I'm allegedly some sort of professional at shooting or I'm allegedly a better hunter than you and and none of that could be further from the truth. Um, certainly in my case I just really like to tell stories. Um, I'm fortunate enough to work with very talented individuals individuals who um, we just together we like to work as a group and I just happen to be the guy in front of the camera but the stories really aren't even about me they're about the places that I uh, go and, and about how the things that unfold and certainly about the wildlife so um, in that particular story in that particular that that evening um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll literally never forget it um, that day that I thought we were going to see Steve, the day that was kind of misty and rainy that you see in the film, um, I was actually driving that morning. I don't think I've ever told this story, but I was driving my truck that morning. I had to run a quick errand. We were going to hunt in the evening time. And um, I accidentally ran over a rabbit that was trying to run across the road. It was a complete accident, uh, not something I would ever do on purpose. And as soon as I hit that rabbit, I thought... This is going to be terrible karma for me later on today. I just feel like this is going to be really a bad deal, and and so um, of course I'm I'm somewhat kidding, but I did think that when I hit that yeah, rabbit. You get so, those little feelings sometimes. Yeah, you know it's like a crime against wildlife, yeah. and then now I'm going to have to be have to pay the piper though. Um, but the whole setup, the whole setup for Steve in that little meadow was such a pins and needles setup. I was in such a small tree that if I even moved my hips or adjusted my weight at all, the entire tree I was in would just go, shh. (laughs) And then uh, William, the photographer, he was in the next little tree over in just as small of a tree. And when he would just move the camera a little bit, his whole tree would, shh. And so here we're trying to hunt this six-and-a-half-year-old whitetail who makes almost no mistakes. And this trail that he had been using, it was, uh, was like 22 yards or something. I don't recall. But he comes out literally at eight yards right underneath our tree stands. And kudos to us for um, for being in his living room and not getting busted. But it took – I mean, when, when William saw him and turned to me and said, hey, Steve is right here, I, I said, what? And he said, Steve is – right here and i looked down and i just saw antlers standing next to what you know and i mean he was feet away then he walks out i come to full draw i'm completely calm 
And, um, and lo and behold, my arrow got sucked into a group of twigs that we had hemmed and hawed over cutting for probably 10 minutes because we, we wanted to have cover, we wanted to trim a hole, blah, blah, blah. So that's where you see my arrow getting sucked down into the left. It looks like I missed him by a mile, and I did, but luckily um, it was just because of some twigs he runs out. And that fateful shot, I'll just tell you this, you're going to have to watch the movie, but I'll tell you this, the shot... Um, it was forward. It was my mistake. Steve does move at the release of my arrow, but 100% it was my mistake. And one of the things that I'll say was probably the biggest mistake was I was using, um, in my opinion now, I was using the wrong equipment. I was using a lighter arrow and a lighter broadhead that a friend of mine um, um, works at this company. And so I was using these broadheads. So he would get me some broadheads. And, and, uh, if I was using my setup now that I'm using, the heavy arrow that I'm using now, the heavier broadhead that I'm using now, uh, Steve would have been killed that first afternoon. But as it, as it were, um, my arrow hit a little half-inch thick piece of his anatomy that doesn't allow arrows through. One inch back, and I would have looked like a superhero, one inch forward, and same result. And and it just hit that one spot, and and, um, and Steve ran off, and it was terrible, man. Um I hadn't wounded very many animals in my life. I definitely missed animals, but uh, it was a it was a haunting and disgusting feeling. Like obviously, I caused him pain. This is something that he was going to have to go through in his life, and we didn't know it then. But um, you know, fast forward a year later, and and we we get to have another interaction with him. But um, where I'm using a heavy arrow and a different broadhead, and and everything went to plan. We, we, we don't want to give too yeah, much we don't want to give too much, too much away. away. You know, to to make yourself publicly as vulnerable as that. I mean, I, I can actually tell. It just, I can hear it in your voice that it still it still gets to you. Yeah. And you obviously you you can clearly see that and and hear that in the film. And you know, like like we said before, I asked you about this is that you know not everyone would want to show you show that. But what I think it shows is the tremendous uh, tremendous amount of care, and affection that hunters have for what we are hunting for which you don't always get to see you know with the sort of uh we've we've got a bit of a culture with online films of kill shot after kill shot after uh, you kill know shot. I, I was just away to Please. say that about the kill shots and someone actually left a comment on our first episode that we put out saying great film i wish there was more hunting in it and we're like well if Byron actually comment <laughs> saying uh, there's loads of uh, kill shots on YouTube. Just go and look at that. Like you know, what well, you know, we're telling the whole story. You know, the hunting yeah. is the smallest part of the story. It is for yeah. us. It, I mean, the actual shooting of the in the, this particular case, the stag, was the smallest part of the entire story, and that's mm -hmm. what we're trying to show people. <laughs> and and it's 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 um it's really hard to talk to non-hunters and um. You know, there's there's a whole demographic of people that we have the ability to talk to, and some of them are diehard hunters, some of them are casual hunters, some of them are non-hunters, and some of them are are against hunting. and And you have to kind of welcome all groups into your wheelhouse, and you have the ability to talk to all groups and engage them in in a conversation. And what we do as hunters is something that is is you know it's barbaric. We arrow or shoot animals. We, um, we hunt them, we track them down, we shoot them, we cut them up, we put them in our backpack, and we hike them out. 
it's really hard to convince someone that's not a hunter or certainly somebody that's against hunting. It's really hard to convince them of the love uh, and the care that we have for wildlife and our wildlife resources. But um, the act in and of itself of hunting is is filled with tremendous care. We care about the resources and we're, we're engaging the resources. It doesn't mean that um, um, just because we're removing something from the resources that we're, we're going at this uh, um, bloodthirsty or it's um, us versus them mentality, which, which some hunters have. And I encourage hunters to kind of take a step back from, from how they're um, engaging with the non-hunting audience and think about, uh, like you guys said a, a little while ago, whether we're being on camera or whether we're being watched, um, we have to behave in the same manner. We have to hunt as conservationists. We have to be ethical hunters and, and follow a certain level of guidelines, not, not just to follow rules, but we have to make the right decisions in the wilderness so that the wilderness and all the wild animals can perpetuate and, and be in a better fashion when we leave than when we get there. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know, those people who do know of you, um, who listen to this, will more than likely have seen your um, Who We Are film on, on yeah, uh, YouTube. Yeah, without on, a doubt, on yeah. Which I think kind of encapsulates in probably the most uh, comprehensive and eloquent way I've seen ever captured what you've just, you know, what you've just kind of described there. Thank what, you. what was the, what made you make that film? What was the, the origins of, of who we are? There's um, two reasons. And, and, and um, the, the simplest reason, the, the most revealing reason is um, National Geographic wanted to do a TV show with us. And, um, they kind of asked me what I would be interested in doing on a TV show. And I said, I would love to tell the story of the hunter. I would love to celebrate, um, the original hunters, Aboriginal hunters, um, people that are still hunting for food today. And they said, well, that's great. But the society, there's two components of National Geographic. There's the society, which runs the magazine. There's National Geographic, the channel. And they said the channel is kind of okay a little bit with hunting as long as it's for food or to um, bring furs or whatever to the marketplace for a subsistence culture. Uh, but the society is absolutely against, against hunting. So, um, you know, I, I didn't debate with them, but I had a conversation with them. And I said, well, how can we um, educate these groups? So let's, let's educate and maybe let's do a TV show to bring more light to the hunting community so people can see really who hunters are and the conservationists that they are. And, uh, and, and, and so they basically said, why don't you do a five to seven minute, no BS. Um, it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be interesting. Just tell us, look right down the barrel of the camera and just tell us why it is that you hunt. Mm -hmm. And then we'll play it internally and we'll decide whether we're going to move forward together on a TV show or whatever. So we did that, and that was that. That was not polished at all. That was literally me sitting in front of a camera, and most of it's in the pouring rain, sitting on that tire of the Super Cub in the Northwest Territories, and me just saying uh, what it is that I said. And um, it wasn't planned out. It wasn't scripted. It wasn't written. And, um, and, and then Kyle, he's the one that just beat me over the head with it, that we should go public with it. And I was completely against going public with it because I kind of pull out uh, vegetarianism in there. I yeah, yeah. pull out 
PETA. And, and I don't want any contention. I don't, I'm not looking for, I don't think hunters need to engage with anti-hunters or non-hunters in that regard. I think we need to engage people only in information and elevating them. And so that was, look, by and large of it, when you, when you boil it all down, when you, when you remove all of the production quality, when you remove all of the podcasts, magazine articles, books written, the bottom line is human beings have been on the earth for a very, very short time. Over 90% of that time, we have been hunters and gatherers. It just so happens that the shortest little period of time that humans have been on the globe, we've been moving in a very fast technological um, age. And so things are moving very, very fast. We're making food faster than we ever have before through genetics and through land cultures because we're trying to catch up with the 8 billion mouths that we have to keep fed. And the long and short of it is we're moving very fast from hunters and gatherers society the most successful society we've ever had. We're moving very fast from it. And as we move very fast from it, more and more people are forgetting where they have come from. And if you, and my only point in that film was I completely appreciate the fact that you want to be a vegetarian or practice veganism. I completely appreciate it. But the fact of the matter is you come from a hunter and gatherer. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. And if we could remove the restaurants and the grocery stores in the blip of an eye, you would, everyone would revert back to hunting and fishing instantly. There'd be no other option. Yeah. It's totally true. (laughs) It is. It's so true. And when you boil it down, like you just have, it makes it so simple. And, you know, we, we've, we've said this before in, uh, in podcasts and I've written it in articles that I've written is that hunters in general, as, as a group of people have been historically fairly poor at explaining why we do what we do and the benefits of it. It's only now in the last couple of years, and some of it's to do with uh, the use of social media and film, which is readily accessible to everyone, that those stories can really be be told. But we're playing a lot of catch-up to a lot of negative information and false information that has been fed into the media and so into the public psyche. And it's you know it's films like the ones that you've that you've made which have the potential to ha- have such an impact because for the first time, it's all out there. It's, it's raw and it's honest. And you said that, you know, none of that was scripted. Well, you know, I could, I could tell that. You can see that that was, that was coming from the heart of what you honestly believed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as hunters, we struggle with, um, you know, we have terms like trophy hunting. Um, and, and what does that mean? And, and we have, you know, in some in some regards, people say that's bringing a lot of economic value to animals that otherwise would just be getting poached and sold on the black market. And we have, um, and we have this idea of of um, um, overpopulation and, and over harvesting. And then we have people that are confusing poaching with hunting, yeah. uh, because if somebody's if somebody's shooting a deer out of season or somebody shooting uh, and they're being negligent and they're shooting a hundred ducks over their limit. Um, look what this hunter did, you know, and, and when I speak to groups, I, I try to convey to these people that hey, these guys aren't hunters. They're, they're killing animals with guns or bows, but they're not hunters. They're poaching. They're thieves of wildlife. They're stealing wildlife from both the people that just want to photograph it and be next to it and be near it and harvest it. And they're, they're stealing it from all of us. And, 
as as our populations grow exponentially and our land shrinks exponentially, we have to celebrate these wild areas more than ever. And as hunters, we have to sit back and not only do we have to engage non-hunters the exact way we would as if nobody's looking, we have to behave always as though everyone's watching us because you should be behaving that way anyway. Killing an animal's life is a huge decision. It should absolutely fill your mind and your heart, if not with sorrow, with absolute wherewithal. You should be very present in that moment, and you should know what this animal is about to go through. You should know that this is a really big decision. And if we behave this way, you're not, we're not here to convince non-hunters to become hunters. We're just here to tell people why we hunt and why we're going through this facet. And if we, if we define these terms with our actions and we define hunting with our actions, it's a lot easier um, to, to help people um, understand hunting than it is if, if, if we're doing really gross things and we're trying to ask them just to kind of step on our side or we're being even gross enough to say, hey, I'm going to hunt. It's my right. You know, like you can kiss my ass. Yeah. Because you if, if, you, if you're, yeah, you if you're looking for a war, we're going to lose. If you're looking for a fight, it's a fight that we're going to lose. I assure you. You know, I heard you. I heard you say that um, before, and I think on another podcast, uh, possibly, or maybe on your blog. And I, I have to admit that I, I had to kind of think about myself a little bit when you said that, and think about things that I had maybe written or said in the past. I don't think I've ever been, in terms of you know, this is absolute all-out war. But what you say is actually very true, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying at the start. Whereas what we should be doing is providing education and information and putting it out there. I mean, that is an actual fact why my brother and I started this podcast. This podcast, yeah. Was because we felt over here in, in our country, in the UK and across Europe, certainly, there wasn't this outlet of free information with debate like, like we are having here. Real, honest, open debate you know, from the mouths of hunters who are doing it the right way. And those are the kind of people we wanted to engage in and and just make it available and, and be honest right be honest be mm. sincere like there's nothing to spin for the non-hunters there's there's if anybody uh if anybody picks a side right if anybody says things are black or they're white or they pick a side or they're standing on their soapbox to declare something even myself or another hunter or a non-hunter and anti-hunter, anytime anybody stands up on a box and declares something, all they're declaring is that they are a fool. Nothing is black and white. We live, everything is in a gray area. And these ideas of conservation, the ideas of preservation, the ideas of that hunting can save a population or diminish a population or destroy a population or that preservation can do the same things, those ideas... Are, it's silly to think that there aren't a number of variables on the move here. We have to constantly be reevaluating what is going on, where are we spending our time, and what needs to be done to both ourselves, animal populations. So we have to just realize that everything is gray area, everything is changing all the time, and we have to just literally go forward being the best land stewards that we can be, whether that means hunting, non-hunting, or 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 doing a preservation or a conservation model. Yeah, no, I th I think you've 
that encapsulates actually exactly what I I believe. I just finished uh, putting together a report on the IUCN trophy hunting report that came out and uh, looking through all their recommendations to the European Parliament for them basing their decisions on whether they should uh, limit um, trophies yeah. in, in and out of uh, Europe. And I was saying in there that what we need to do as hunters is we need to view, try and view everything completely objectively, exactly what you've just said. We need to view it as wildlife managers, what is in the best interest of the land and the wildlife. It just so happens that in most situations that involves some form of hunting for population management, for money coming into areas, which is particularly true in, uh, in a lot of Africa, and there's loads of cases that explain... And food. Yeah, yeah, food. Also bear in mind that, you know, there are people in these places, and that has to be built into the model, whether that be North America or whether that be Africa. And if we can take that approach where that is our focus, and we make sure everybody knows that that is our focus, but the spin-off of that is that we know, as we have done for hundreds and hundreds of years that being a hunter at its core and everything that, that that goes with that is actually in the greater interest but we can't start with that position which is you know you you summarize it a lot more eloquently than i, I just I, did i like the term stewards of the land yeah, i like that's that great. <laughs> yeah and yeah go ahead go ahead Oh no! I was just saying that you know I'm going to use that phrase again. Steal that. I'm going to steal that phrase yeah. at some point. If you can convince all of your listeners uh, to read uh, Aldo Leopold's "A Sand County Almanac," yep. Um, if everyone that passed hunter safety worldwide or bought a hunting license worldwide was forced to read Aldo Leopold's "A Sand County Almanac" and understand his writings. And we would be in a much better place. Yeah. Now there are there are some great people and uh, hunters in our history who set the foundations for a lot of what people enjoy these days. And uh, few examples are truer than of North America. You'll know far more about it than I do. But the, you know the conservation system that you have there is something to be to be heralded, and it has worked so well. I know that there there are issues, and you know there's always going to be problems. I you you might have a bit more info on this recently, but I, I noticed a couple of two things uh, in North America. One was controversy over opening up grizzly bear hunting in uh, certain states, and the other was um, the sale of public yeah, lands. I saw was, that public yeah. lands. I don't know if you can elaborate on those at all, Donny. Um, I I can't elaborate too much on the sale of public land. I I've I'm looked into it a little bit. I know it's. Um, I know it's uh, an alarming prospect, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that 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 uh, seems like a disgusting prospect to me. Um, I'm sure the wealthy love the idea. I'm sure the people, those that are the haves, love the idea, and the have-nots don't like the idea. And then you have guys in the middle like me that, um, what a terrible thought to think about people not being able to enjoy some wild areas because now, um, you know, some banker from Manhattan, New York owns, just purchased a million acres in, in Montana, right? That just seems like uh, uh, an interesting prospect but to me. You but would actually like, have no rights to access the land in, in America, am I right in saying? If that was the yes. case, if it was probably... Yeah, that would be the case. Uh, yeah, it, be, it, be in no in Scotland, where we are, there is no... Public land. There's no public such. land. No public land. But there is a right to roam. So, so you, you can walk anywhere. Oh, but you can't. Okay. You can't hunt anywhere. Yeah. So okay. You, so yeah, you can. Yeah. You can. Okay, you can so appreciate really all hard. the all the wildlife, but you have to 
have permission to to be to on hunt. that land to hunt yeah. but we don't have okay. the vast landscapes no. that you've got so it's a little bit of one a... of your national parks is the same size as our country <laughs> so yeah 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 and <laughs> imagine like if you think about and i don't know i don't have the acreages in my head um but like you look at like alaska it's over 90 percent public hunting land hmm. right and anywhere you go um it's it's as wide open as you could possibly fathom and i encourage you guys and I wish I could take you. I can't because I'm not a registered guide. But I encourage you to, if you can, get um, to those regions and walk outside of your tent and just take a deep breath and take a look around. It is a very big place. Well, we we can take you here. So if you're ever over in Scotland, okay. we can take you hunting here. Yeah, but, I, but it, it is I, a, our I, ambition I, to head to those places that yeah. you that you that you show in your films. And I'm sure that's been an inspiration to many people heading over there. <laughs> yeah. For that very yeah, reason. You know, and, and probably, and this is something that I actually want to look into doing. I don't know how to do it and make it work, but um, I want to start doing at least some program where I get to take um, a few people with me, right? Amazing. Whether it be once a year, find a trip, take somebody that has absolutely no wherewithal to ever get to the Arctic Circle and just take them with me and l- let them experience backpacking and um, maybe arrowing or shooting a caribou cutting it up and carrying it back to camp and sharing, um, you know, sharing that hunt, you know, and, uh, by the fire and by the tent and under Northern lights. And, um, I don't know how to find those people that would really, uh, enjoy those things. Uh, um, I would enjoy that- it. So, I mean, <laughs> sorted. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, I would, that, I, passing I would that on. Much it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the second, um, what was the second it was topic? It about grizzly bears. Grizzly bears. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that is, um, it's like the wolf, right? You're talking about a symbol that is the very definition of the wilderness. And this, these are some of the debates that I kind of shake my head at. Um, I don't, there are a lot of variables. Like I discussed a few moments ago, hunters by and large like to say there's tons, uh, I can't even tell you how many hunters I've talked to that say there's tons of grizzly bears in Montana, Wyoming. There's so many grizzly bears. We have to start hunting them. They're killing people. They're eating small dogs. They kill the clown. They <laughs> took down a school bus of children. We have, you know, they try because they're trying to convince, they're trying to sell their argument when really if you took a step back and said, look, there really are a lot of grizzly bears and let's look at the facts. Um, what are the grizzly bear populations and what studies have been done and how accurate are those studies and what are the outliers? The, did the statisticians pick a set of variables that say there's a lot of grizzly bears or really are there a lot of grizzly bears? Because you can change the parameters on a number of things and yeah. kind of start to alter your population quite a bit. So let's be smart first. And then you have the anti-hunters um, that, or, 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 or the people that want to protect the grizzly bear. And it's very easy to, to see their um, shallow argument of look at this amazing animal they need huge expanses of land we're taking their expanses of land from them all the time Um, we need to preserve this animal but again um, we're probably starting to get into this overpopulation realm because their their habitat is shrinking their numbers are continuing to grow so there's probably like i was saying a few minutes ago a happy medium maybe Mm -hmm. we need to maybe we have to kill four bears a year not open hunting but you know Somebody who's far smarter than I am has to find what these populations are, what type of hunting they can sustain, and then set up a rules and laws so that they are hunted with tremendous respect and that um, the entire animal is utilized when it's killed, that it's just not 
a skin that's harvested and a carcass that's left behind in a wilderness area because I don't think we should be hunting that way. And so um, there's just a lot of variables and, and it's, it's, and, and quite honestly, I might receive a negative letter for that statement, but the fact of the matter is somebody who's smarter than I am and has more wherewithal has to make these decisions, but I really hope they, they factor in both. And, and both, both, both hunters and non-hunters, we both have our ridiculous groups, right? We both have, True. we have our hunters where we just want to say, shh, you <laughs> just stop talking. And then we have, it's the same with anti-hunters. There's in, um, in Minneapolis here, I love driving past this billboard. But there's a huge billboard in downtown Minneapolis that says, save the wolves. And it's a picture of a coyote <laughs> on the billboard. So, so these, oh, not, these anti-hunters, these people that are trying to protect the wolf in Minnesota, they couldn't even find a photo of the wolf. <laughs> They're stamping their money on this billboard. And either they couldn't find a picture of a wolf or they think that that's a wolf. And so it just doesn't bode well. I don't know how many other people notice it, but every time I drive past it, it just makes me chuckle. <laughs> I, I, I think it's probably the second. I think they probably don't know it's not a wolf. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably it as well. Yeah, it's pretty easy to find a photo of a wolf. But yeah, that's what I'm talking about is people love to stamp something. They want to say no. They want to say um, yes or no. And, and there's just so many variables out there that, the, the more we can take a step back and just kind of ask a few more questions, um, we, we're probably going to find a much better answer. Yeah. Generally speaking, as with most things in life, it's somewhere in the middle that is the best solution. It might not be perfect, but it's the best solution. Yeah. I mean, what per is your... went out the window long ago. Oh, sorry, Donnie? Perfect went out the window a yeah. long time <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah. I mean, there is always the argument that gets thrown back in that, you know, if it's if it's a true wilderness, it's in balance and it takes care of itself. You we hear this yeah, all we, the we time. Yeah, we get this all people, the time. Yeah, and it's quite easy for us to argue against that here because we live in a relatively small country and it's very very clear that populations of all our deer species need managed and surplus. And you can see that with numbers and the areas that have too many and the road accidents and whatever else and all our deer are counted every year by helicopter and you know that they have got a real good grasp on numbers yeah. in and this country undoubtedly there'll be some areas that have problems but yeah like daryl says it's they've got a good grasp of it it for me it becomes a little bit more difficult because i don't know it as well as you do to argue that in those vast expanses like you guys have in north america so what's your take on that well, I'll tell you, first of all, um, defining a wilderness area, right? Mm, okay. Really, how big of an area will start to regulate itself, mm. right? R really, wh what does that mean? And, and certainly, if you go up to the Arctic Circle or something like that, you might start to think, okay, this is a huge area, and it is. But when you start looking at the different populations of people that are up there, the pressures that might be coming from pollution the pressures that might be coming from global climate change, the pressures that might be coming from um, uh, wolf populations that remain unhunted or moose populations that remain unhunted or caribou going through a cyclic change. Um, there are things that I, I don't know that can balance themselves out any longer. And people love to think that if you leave a wilderness area alone, uh, Disney World happens. <laughs> yeah. That's what people love to think, right? That it perpetuates into a harmony. And... There are predator-prey relationships. There are feast and famine relationships. There are droughts. There are fires. There are floods. But very rarely do we let any of that stuff perpetuate any longer. And in my opinion, 
when we were hunters and gatherers before the advent of agriculture, let's call it 13,000 years ago, before agriculture, when we truly had to move around to find a resource, we truly could only raise a finite number of children because um, we could just go off of breast milk to, to get through um, um, the child rearing years. And if we had more than a single child or, or, or two children, um, as sad as it may seem, um, those children didn't live because they, they truly couldn't be sustained. So our population was kept in check. Our excrement, as lovely as that is a notion to think about, our excrement was kept moving around and we kept moving from our excrement. And then the world had the advent of corn and rice. Now all of a sudden, we can stay in one place. Now all of a sudden, we can raise multiple children because we can mix corn and rice with milk meal and we can create a, 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 a slurry of food that can raise multiple children. Now we're living in one place next to our excrement, which starts the perpetuation of disease instantly. So as soon as that stopwatch went with agriculture, I think the world started to perpetuate from human beings being just another animal, albeit we have huge brains and these little numbers right here. <laughs> That's uh, Donnie's so, holding up his thumbs for those people who are only listening to Oh yeah, to I'm sorry. <laughs> so we have huge brains and our opposable thumbs. Uh, so, so we try to hold ourselves in a higher class than really the animals that are fighting for the same space and for the same food. But really, we are just animals with huge brains and opposable thumbs. But as soon as we click that time, as soon as we click that stopwatch of staying in one place, raising multiple babies, and, and starting to plow under wild areas to create food, as, as soon as we started that perpetuation, uh, we started... Uh, the timeline of disease, we started the timeline of, of overpopulation. And as soon as we did that, we started compromising wilderness areas and we perpetuated into what we have right now. But um, certain wilderness areas, are there a few throughout the world? Uh, maybe the Himalayas or, or maybe areas of Alaska, areas of northern Canada, the Arctic region. Amazon. Um, Maybe, yeah. You know, some some big countries and um, um, big areas in certain countries of Africa, maybe. But those areas are small, and they're shrinking. Yeah, fast. Shrinking. And the other, the other flip side to that, or the addition to that, is that you can have these areas which might very well be classed, if you could class them, um, as true wildernesses. But there is still the additional uh, pressure of man and poaching, and economic economic um, derivation of whatever it is and if there isn't regulated hunting in those areas as we've seen with Marco as we're seeing right now with um, with rhino and elephant um, particularly in countries which have closed their hunting that species disappears yeah there's no protection and it's weird right you, uh, so you're telling me this is this is the part that non-hunters would say so wait a minute you're telling me we have to kill elephants and rhinos to save elephants and rhinos mm. and kind of yeah. that's kind of the economic value that comes with killing elephants and rhinos creates protection for elephants and rhinos mm. and and selective harvest for elephants and rhinos you can pull out key bulls that are causing issues, key bulls that are decimating areas by being the bully on the block. And um, that's the very difficult thing to sell. But the second you pull out the economic value, the second you take the people out of there, the poachers move in, it's the Wild West, 
and everybody dies. Yeah. I mean, you, you probably, uh, well, you will have seen, it was a couple of years ago now when Corey Norton uh, bid for that uh, Black Rhino, which he won. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the amount of abuse that that poor guy got off the back of that. And mm -hmm. if, if the media had stopped for one second to actually find out what the backstory, yeah, and there's no. a brilliant podcast with him on Radio Lab uh, for anyone that wants to listen to it. It's, uh, it's a, quite a long podcast. And he talks about the whole story. They actually interviewed him uh, after the, where he won the auction and they went out to Africa with him for when, when he actually hunted this rhino. And the truth of the matter was that this um, black rhino bull was actually um, injuring many other black rhinos in the vicinity and was beyond mm -hmm. breeding age. So mm -hmm. no benefit to the species whatsoever. Nothing. Mm -hmm. In fact, detrimental. A, det a detriment, actually. Yeah, a detriment. I mean, a number. The, the, the problem is it's more than just a plus one in the column, right? So we go, okay, so we have 100 rhinos. We have a hundred, well, plus that old boy over there. So we have a hundred and one. And if you don't look at any other variables and you stay close-minded, a hundred and one rhinos is better than a hundred rhinos. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you start to dive into the information, you go. So if we kill that one rhino in two years, we might be at one hundred and seven rhinos instead of one hundred and three rhinos. Okay. Well, now you're starting to talk. Now we're starting to realize different variables and different things and fundraising in this, but. The act and what the only, my only criticism of that whole thing was how the hunting community kind of celebrated it, and and, and they create some contention in that in that manner. I That's think, true. but other yeah. than that, um, yeah. it's a great plan. Yeah, I mean, and three hundred and fifty thousand or whatever it was, which yeah. you don't shoot that bull. It carries on. There's nothing else they can do with it. What they would, what they probably would have done with that bull, they, well, they, they probably would have put it down. Would have put it down, and it would yeah. have had yeah. no yeah. value, no money coming. Three hundred fifty thousand dollars not going into anti poaching. Yeah, and did did do you guys know? Did anyone eat the bull and uh, um, pass? What? I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to comment on the eating of it because I don't know the answer to that. But but Byron, sure. Byron's done trips in Africa, and he he was involved in filming um, a hippo, and yeah, it all all gets eaten. Yeah, that's. Another misconception, uh, and in fact, I was something that I, I wanted to get onto with you next, is about if you want to call it trophy hunting, which is the the term that is banded out in terms of the public, and quite often, trophy hunting and hunting seem to go hand in hand when they're when they're talked about outside of well, e even inside the, yeah, the hunting inside. community, inside and outside. Yeah. And it has a lot of negative connotations with it. One of which is exactly what um, Daryl was just saying. Well, you know, you're taking a trophy, you're not eating. Yeah, the, that, that, I the think meat. that is one of the big misconceptions. It is. is and yeah. we had uh, Michaela um, on a few podcasts ago, and she's a big um, huntress, uh, hunter, whatever you want to call it. In, Lo in love that term. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, in Europe, and she hunts quite a lot in Africa and big cats. And she gets a lot of abuse. I mean, a huge amount of abuse. Mm. Uh, and she was saying one of the big things she always gets is, you know, I can't believe you're just shooting that to put it on your wall. And she's like, well, actually, we eat it as well. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, even the cats get eaten. That's Yeah, <laughs> it has, that, that has to be, right? That, that, mm. it, uh, I do think that people, I, I hate the term trophy hunting. Yeah. And I do think that people think that, um, animals are getting killed, their heads are getting cut off, and uh, just like is just like is sensationalized in movies sometimes, 
then the rich guy hops back on the airplane, takes the head of the elk, flies home. It's over the fireplace and the rest of the animal rots. Um, I've had several people write me letters and, uh, and say, you know, uh, I really like the way you hunt. I like the way you go about your hunting, but, um, I see the animals that you shoot are really big. Um, I think you might be a trophy hunter. Mm, Yes. And, um, I don't know how to answer that because when I go hunting, it takes a certain animal for me to go through that ritual of that big decision of pulling the trigger. Um, I know there are a lot of people out there that are quote unquote meat hunters that go out there and I shoot the first animal they have an opportunity at. Um, they cut it up and they eat it and that's, that's great. I completely appreciate that. Um, neither trophy hunting or shooting the first um, small, maybe young animal that you see probably have relatively little impact on the population, a lot less than, than we like to believe, right? Some, some um, deer hunting managers in, in certain places, they say, hey, let them go, let them grow if they want a deer with big antlers. But really, that might affect your farm. That might affect, you know, if you're, if you're trying to shoot a red stag that has really big antlers, that might affect your ranch where you're shooting your red stag. But it's not going to affect the red stag population too terribly much. But personally, for me, even if it's a, a 1%, I'd much rather harvest, kill, a big old bull, whether that be an elk, caribou, um, a big old boar, black bear, I'd rather kill an animal that has already lived the majority of its life, contributed to the population the majority of its life, and I'm going to kill it on the on the back end of its life. I'd just much rather do that just because it works out for me as a hunter, in my mind, to be able to cross that barrier of that big decision of killing the animal. Yeah. I mean, for us here, we do... We do a lot of hunting, which would be classed as uh, population management, and that that tends to fall into, you know, obviously you're taking out your your sick and your weak animals if you can. Uh, we we <laughs> do we do quite quite a lot of that here, and anything that helps sustain the the spectrum of age class throughout whatever the this particular species is. I, I've got a, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of fairly small farms, well, very small by, by U.S. standards, <laughs> yeah. that I've shot for, I don't know, 15, 15 years or something. How, how big? How big are Oh, farms? no, I mean, these are, these are tiny. They would be classes uh, home farms. Oh, yeah, oh, home farms probably are... Each, each, oh, one, each one's about 400 acres. Oh, that's not small. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's fairly small. But, I mean, there's no game fences. They're, they're, they're farms. Right. You know, they're, yeah. They have some cattle. So anything sheep. can pass yeah. through. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. anything that's there is wild and because it wants to be there in the sort of rough corner of it. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it's, yeah, it's about population management. So I, I shoot a lot of young ones and then the odd old one. But quite often, especially with rodeo on those particular farms I'm talking about, the old boys that I end up shooting have probably passed their prime. So their antlers have probably gone back. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to get the biggest trophy on my wall and, you know, of all the stuff I've shot, I've barely got, I don't have a huge amount hanging on my wall. I have, you know, well, because a lot of it's cull animals, so you, you're, not really, you're not really sticking those on your wall. But it would have been, if I was a trophy hunter, if you want to call it that, I should have shot it a year or two years before. Sure, sure. And I'm the same way. I'm the exact same way I... Um, I have a even smaller than your farm. I have a farm that's just east of my home that's 153 acres. Um, and I manage it um, very much so. In fact, I, I just got off the phone before I called you gentlemen and I'm putting in um, right in the middle of the, of the farm. It's just a big uh, cornfield right now. So it looks like a mud 
uh, parking lot, right? There's not a lot of uh, wilderness value in row crop type land. So I'm putting in a bunch of warm season grasses, putting in some waterways, putting in some um, plants that the deer, that are our natural food source that deer are going to be able to feed on year round. Um, and it's not because I'm not doing all of this because I want to shoot a monster buck. I'm doing this because, you know, next time I'm walking to my tree stand, I'd really love to bump into a bull snake or a box turtle. I'd love to see a different variety of songbirds than I'm seeing when I'm, when I'm hunting out there. And um, I'd much rather do total ecosystem balance and then every year kill a couple of does, maybe an old buck that's on the farm, something like that, um, for food for myself. And, and then, uh, that's the hunting that I really sincerely enjoy as much as the big trips, um, that I do the big expeditions that I really love. I'm to kind of push myself on and bring meat home from those too. But to me, it's the, it's the same, right? It's the same. No, I can appreciate that balance between like the hunting that we do yeah. at home here, and then when uh, I go, no, over... not nothing that we've hunted in the last, nothing at all actually since we started filming. You would regard as a trophy. Nothing. No, it's not. It's that's yeah. It, it just it just hasn't been, and that's just the way it's landed. Because but I'm happy with them all. Yeah, over the moon with with but all of them. The, of the course, place, the yeah. places that we've been we've been hunting, we've always been hunting for a specific purpose, mm. and. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate enough to hunt in these places because we're helping with whatever it is that they're doing. So when we were shooting the stags up in Sky, that was a an that was area. Part, yeah, part yeah. of their management plan yeah. was X amount of stags. So we were part of the management plan. And, and a certain amount of cull stags. Yeah. And that particular one um, had potential to damage other stags during during the year because of the makeup of its uh, its antlers. And that was that's sure. 55,000 acres, that one, around the mountain range. So that's, that's yeah. a slightly bigger... <laughs> Yeah, so that's starting to be where you're really starting to look at a subpopulation, right? Mm. And and when I was saying before, like, you're not really, whether you shoot young animals or old bulls, you're not really going to affect the population. I didn't mean that you couldn't affect it on your farm or ranch. What I mean is the red stag population overall, when you guys kill a certain bull or a certain um, hind or whatever you call the cows there, um, unless you, hind? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so unless you over-harvest, um, you're having a nominal effect on the population, right? There's there's so many dynamics that you're going to have this um, ebb and flow of age class and and sex ratio and and habitat usage and and uh, yeah, it's it's just great. Um, terribly rewarding to participate, isn't it? Terribly rewarding to um, in, to go into a place and enhance it and leave it better than you found it. Yeah, and that's that's the most satisfying is knowing that you've you've been part of trying to make it better. And going back to what you were saying about how it's not your, you, what you've done on that particular farm, only a small part of that is because of the animals that you might hunt there. It's for everything else. When we were... Um, we, we, uh, we love looking at all, the, all the other stuff. Uh, Byron, we've talked about this a few times actually on the show, because when we're filming, I'm, I'm obsessed with insects and yeah and frogs and stuff like that and I, i'll always sit and film them way way more than anything else <laughs> no no we don't we gotta I'm, go we gotta go hunt them. like fro- <laughs> you know we've got we got frogs that appear left right and center in our films just because we find them like he, he's going in the next film <laughs> that's awesome we, we even yeah, found, that's same man same we, we found one uh we were filming uh a promotional film for vaughan rucksacks and we had no intention of really putting much wildlife in it as such, because apart from some deer in at the end, and there was uh, the toads and the frogs are spawning, and we're driving the Land Rover, and we're like, 
oh my god we have to get these guys crossing the road so you know we've got this frog hopping across the road and we've got the landover <laughs> slamming on the brakes and the frog you know he almost has this look in his eyes he's just like cheers guys carries on hopping along yeah. the road <laughs> but it's it's those little things that just i mean you know, we're talking about that now as part of, of an experience, which was there was so much more to it. But it's those things that are just so important. And it's amazing how m- many times it little things like that get missed by, I don't want to say all non-hunters, but by a lot of people in the sort of general public population who still frequent these, uh, you know, nice and beautiful scenic wild areas. We were uh, one of the places we were filming. In fact, it's the same mountain range we were just talking about. When we were busy dragging this uh, stag off, off for off five the six hours, yeah, to get it back down to the, the 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 track that we could eventually get a vehicle in on, and we dragged it within it was less than a hundred meters of a guy who was lying on top of a rock taking pictures of the mountains, and he went up that mountain and left that mountain without ever knowing that we had dragged a stag past him because he had his <laughs> earphones in, and he was so intent on what he was doing, we could see that he was totally oblivious. And we saw mm-hmm. the same thing with people walking up the mountains just, you know, to get to the top. Uh, and we were spying stags um, on another face. And we could see these two, these we, two people. I think we got it on film. They we walked so close to it. And they must have walked 50 meters underneath them. Underneath didn't even them. Know they didn't even there. know they were there. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the beauty of it. I've, I've, seen, uh, I've seen the same thing. I've seen people walk past us. Uh, luckily, they didn't see us because they probably get scared to death, right, to see somebody hiding in there with a bow. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's um, and sometimes hunters too, right? Sometimes hunters aren't are missing those things, and and um, you know, I like that you guys take the time to film them because uh, really, when you take the time to film the insects and the birds and the flowers and and the things that are going on when you're there, that's what really sucks the the viewer in. That's what really brings them to where you are and allows them to experience what you're experiencing in almost in a first person. Yeah, no, we think so. Anyway. No. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, just the sort of filming aspect of it and yourself and, and Sick Manta and just understand that relationship and, and how that, that came about because that's one thing I'm, I'm a, little bit, a little bit fuzzy with. On 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 uh, on the the dichotomy of it. Well, yeah. I obviously you you are being filmed, but I know that you. I I don't quite know what your involvement is. You you run it or you started it, and the sort of whole team. I want to kind of understand your setup and what else you guys do apart from yeah. the awesome expeditions <laughs> that we see you in. Sure, sure, sure. So yeah, so I started Sick Manta, um, and started it out of uh, out of a necessity of not being able to find. Um, anyone to do the work that I wanted to do, the vision that I had. And so um, it started out a long time ago, um, just like what you gentlemen were just talking about. I would go out hunting. I started bringing a camera along with me because I wanted every time, because I was already hunting. uh, I started hunting Alaska as a freshman in college. And so when I started going up there, running into bears and seeing killer whales and eagles, you know, I started bringing a camera along to film these things so I could share them with my family when I got home. And, um, lo and behold, that kept kind of perpetuating into, um, I started meeting some people in the hunting industry, some kind of, um, big personalities in filming and then also uh, different people at different companies. And they really liked the trips that I were doing and the philosophies that I had on them. And so people were starting to approach me saying, Hey, would you film 
um, when you go on this next sheep hunt, would you bring a camera along and film a show for us? And so I said, yeah, you know, and I was terrible at it. You know, I just would film the same things that everyone films. Like, oh, here's my Uncle Bob, and here's, you know, I'm just making that up, of course. But, like, you just <laughs> film, like, the complete idiotic stuff, right? You're like, oh, my, the fan, you know, the 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 fans want to know that we're making a sandwich, so we better film this entire sandwich-making process. <laughs> you know, things like that. And so... um Lo and behold, I was approached by a group of gentlemen, and they said, would you be interested in hosting a TV show? We'll pay for all of your hunts, um, and we'll go get sponsors. We'll build the whole company around you and all this stuff. And at first, it sounded really fantastic to me, but I was very picky in the gear that I used and the people that I wanted to associate myself with. And in a very short order, I realized that this wasn't going to work out. As sensational as it sounds to have somebody pay for your hunts, and do X, Y, and Z, um, I realized that I was going to lose control of who I was. And I'm such an individualistic hunter, or so I thought, that I didn't want to lose control of who I was, and I didn't want to have to perform for um, like a circus monkey, yeah, if sure. you will. Yeah, because ev so, eventually you'd end up doing things that you potentially don't actually want to be doing, which is understandable. Yep, I'd either have to, yeah, I'd have to use gear that I didn't want to use, or I'd have to shoot an animal that it, that it, it, it didn't, it didn't translate in my heart just to quote unquote get a show. And there's a lot of that you'll see. Um, and, and the people that watch your podcast that are not hunters, I don't want them to think that this is hunting as a whole, but you'll see a lot of dead gray faces in the hunting industry because they've lost their way. Um, and, and they've done it for the wrong reasons for so long that they're, they're just dead to it. And so, um, I didn't want to become one of those. And, um, I started working with another gentleman in the hunting industry, and uh, he's a very, very talented guy, but it just didn't work out. We have different styles and different personalities, and, and um, decided to start my own company. Decided that if we're going to do this, if we're going to break this mold, if we're going to fail sensationally, let's charge down the wrong road at all together all at once. And so um, I hired Kyle Nicolite and William Altman to to basically start Sigmanta with me. I was the one that took the you know the financial leap if you will, but um they're very much we very much attack things as a team and we have a few other um players now that was just in the beginning and we started it in 2011 and um I can't tell you how many people told us we couldn't do it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people said there's no room for films. You have to have a TV show. This is how you do it. You buy your airtime, you get a TV show, you sell to your sponsors to cover your airtime. Hopefully there's some left over at the end, X, Y, and Z, da-da-da. You sell your soul to the devil is what you do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I said, I'm not going to do it. Let's just go and tell a fantastic story. Uh, let's film it beautifully. Um, let me say the things into the camera that I feel like I've wanted to say for so long uh, that it's ridiculous and I owe that to Kyle Nicolite because when I first started talking to him in the camera I started talking to a camera like um like the people I saw on TV were talking to the camera and, and he's just like that's terrible don't do that um you just do you talk like you do in the office be sincere be honest write the way you want to write and and let's just let's just swing at this first pitch as hard as we can and if we miss we miss if we hit it we hit it and so <laughs> That oh, was the beginning of Sigmanta. Amazing. And, so and Kyle came up with the name because it's just totally made up. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, mean anything. anything. doesn't mean anything. No. <laughs> I love we it. Just, 
we looked at phonetics yeah. and uh, what are pleasing words to say. And the sound sick is a really pleasing word to say. And the sound manta is a really pleasing word to say in the English uh, language. So we just came up with sick manta and uh, also for like search engine optimization, right? It doesn't exist. Yeah, so yeah. we are the only one. I, I like what, well, I find it interesting what you were saying there, how people were saying, you get a TV show, you get sponsors, that's the way you do it. And to be honest, I, I couldn't think that's further from the truth now. Days. I mean, it must have been, at the time. I, I guess you were probably yeah. well. You must have been the first to break out of that. I, and there's still not very many people I can think of, if any, actually really doing what you do. Uh, I mean, a big, a, a massively bold move, but it's clearly it's clearly worked. And it's yeah, it's having that freedom, which is obviously what you yearned for, has really allowed you to create something which I. Uh, I would hazard a guess would have been impossible to create within that framework. Yeah, it's it's um, it just is too too constraining, right? It just doesn't allow for um, your work to breathe. And so, like this next film that we're coming out with, I won't tell you too much about it, but um, it's probably going to be over an hour long. Wow! Right, and uh, it's covering three years of filming, and so there's going to be a lot to it. You know, we have we have a lot of moving pieces to it and I'm, I'm uh, really excited to bring it out. But yeah, it's, it's been scary. Don't get me wrong. There's been a billion sleepless nights and, um, you know, there's been many times that I, uh, thought I was going to be a greeter at Walmart by Tuesday, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So it's, uh, and it's been, it's been, and I don't really like talking about this either, but we haven't really done, um, the sponsorship thing hmm. as of yet, uh, with any fashion, f uh, former fashion. And there's some companies that I've really enjoyed working with. And, uh, I'm working more and more with certain companies for gear development. But as far as just like my opinion's not for sale. So, um, if a company wants to work with us, like say Sitka gear, if a company like Sitka gear wants to work with us and develop their clothing line and, and, um, and, and we work together in that fashion. That's something that's really fantastic. But if somebody comes to us and says, we'll pay you to say we're the best, uh, we won't do it. And we've had uh, a pile of offers. Yeah. And it's just not something that I don't think is fair to people that don't know the gear to buy and buy off of your recommendation. I think that's, uh, I just think that's a really bad place to send them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I was actually having a conversation with somebody this morning on yeah. the phone uh, a, a well-known guy within within the industry, and we're having a very similar conversation. But we were talking about the uh, print media and rifle reviews and what have you. And he was saying, you know, it wasn't that long ago where no review was a bad review. And I, I do quite a lot of rifle reviews for one of the magazines over here, and I have done for a few years. But when I came into it, and I, I had a discussion with the editor, I said, "This is this is how it's going to be." I said, "I'm going to say what's on my mind, and if you're upset with that." then you got, we've got two choices. You either don't print it or you just put it in and see what comes out the other end. And you know what the reality of that example was? That it maybe took a little while, and yeah, I did get into trouble once or twice, maybe more than that. <laughs> uh, because obviously they have, they have their own interests to, lo to look well, after. Well, at the end of the day, they're paying for their... Yeah, I mean, in some cases, they're paying for their product to be put in the magazine. Yeah, in terms of advertising, yeah. what have you. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's the same thing with the film. So if you're saying something's not great and they also advertise later on the magazine, <laughs> I can see the conflict there. But from my point of view, 
the integrity that I held within uh, actually not recommending something, but by re reviewing something and somebody could take a recommendation from that was more important to me than churning stuff out, which you know is easy to do. And we see that you know, increasingly on, on social media now, there's a lot of people get given bits of kit and you always see that uh, this kit's the best. There's nothing wrong with it. It's awesome, you mm -hmm. know? And yeah, when we went not into, true. Yeah, not true. And not we true. were- that's, we, what, that's why we were very, very particular with- Well, we were the, so the lucky. The sponsors that so, we, we had. Yeah, we were so lucky because when we went into it, we, exactly what you've described, and I've been involved in uh, quite a lot of other, other filming for some like online channels and what have you, where I, I wasn't in front of it, but I was just filming. I was just doing the filming for them. Um, just fairly bog standard, low level stuff. And the advertising for it is in your face all the time. And I think people, for the most part, kind of just chuck it out. I think they switch honest, off. Because it's, it's yeah. so obvious. Uh, one, it's, it's white noise. Yeah. yeah, it's white noise it's in the background. So I think from that point of view, it doesn't really matter that it's there because it's probably not really influencing anyone. Um, but we wanted to make sure, one, that we weren't doing that because it just doesn't look nice. But secondly, could we go to companies to try and find support for what we want to do because we couldn't really do it without it and get them to agree? And what you were saying is, yeah, obviously, you know, yourself, you've got a, a big profile and there are plenty of other hunters who have big profiles, especially over in the States where there's a lot more money than we have over, over here in the UK to go around for advertising yeah. and what have you. And people being thrown gear at them all the time and exactly what you've just said. And we were just lucky that the four companies we went to, one's not even a company, it's uh, an association, a bit like your Wild Sheep Association. They support uh, hunting yeah, so in the they're, UK. Yeah, so they're not even selling anything. They have nothing, they have nothing to gain no, over nothing. this other than supporting something which they think is a good message. And for yeah, us, and that think, was so important. Yeah, and that's 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 fantastic. So so many people um, are for sale, and it's just you can see it. It's it's really gross, you know. And, and they try to build these teams, and they try to um, get everyone on board, and they <laughs> yeah. try to sell all this stuff, you know. And I got caught with my um, I got caught with it too. I wrote I wrote a, a blog post a few years ago where I was I wore Sitka gear for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually started out wearing just all backpacking gear, Arcteryx, Patagonia, uh, Montbell. Uh, these are companies that I wore. And then, and then I started wearing Sikki gear. I, I wore them originally for a photo shoot for Peterson's Hunting Magazine in 2009. Um, and then I started wearing their gear more and more because it was really good. And, and when they first came on the scene, I had a buddy of mine who was the photographer on that shoot. He said, hey, I can get you a bunch of Sikki gear for the shoot. Would you wear it? And I said, well, have them send a bunch of it to my house. If it's terrible, absolutely not. I'll just send it right back. But if it's good, excuse me, I'll wear it. So they sent it and I put it on. I was like, man, like this is really good. I like it. It's, um, and I started to kind of abuse it and it really held up to it. And then, um, and then I wanted to give uh, Kuyu Gear a test, uh, another backpacking company yeah. in, the, in the States. And, um, and I'll never forget, I, I, I got a bunch of Kuyu Gear in at my house and I wore it. And I wrote this article um, on how uh, Kuyu is the best gear that I'd ever worn. I think and, I read it. Um, you, you read it? I think I did, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so uh, a lot of people read it. Uh, trust <laughs> me, I used to get a lot of letters about it. But, um, but um, what I failed to do, and, I, and I, I, uh, it, was, it was a time when I, I was a Sitka athlete for a long time, and I resigned um, at being a Sitka athlete. It just wasn't something that I wanted to do any longer. And so I wanted to give Kuyu gear a try, and 
and um and I, I kind of liked his uh, I kind of liked uh, his uh, camo pattern. Kind of remind me of like a, a Russian MIG fighter jet yeah. or something like that. It and does. I like the non traditional yeah, type yeah. camouflage and stuff. So I was like, oh, this is not functional at all, but it looks cool. <laughs> so, um, so let's give it a try. And then I wrote that letter. I wrote that blog post, and then I just felt terrible about it because I wore their gear. I wore the Kuya gear on my next three hunts. And I ended up going through like four sets of rain gear in three hunts, whereas prior I had my Arcteryx rain gear and I had my Sitka rain gear that I had worn for like three years and still hadn't had holes in it. It was still waterproof. And here I was shredding the Kuyu gear uh, and shredding the backpacks in just three hunts, not three years, three hunts. Literally, I was... They looked like swimming trunks by the time I was done with these things. And so, and I wrote that letter and I kind of learned a lesson there a little bit that I, I put the cart before the horse and, um, I hope I didn't lead too many people down the road to buy Kuyu gear. And I'm not saying Kuyu gear is not, 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 it's just not for me. It might be for you and, and buy it if it is. But, um, but you know, if, if, if guys were looking for bang for their buck, you know, I, I, I may have missed step there. And so I'm very particular in the gear that I use and I use gear that fails like for, for heaven's sakes, we have to, right. You have to go down the road with some gear and use it until it breaks. Just like rifles. Like I'm sure even your favorite rifle, you say, this is an awesome rifle, but yeah, I personally would change X, Y, and Z. There's always a butt with Byron, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And so that's, what I mean, like it's and and the, if you're honest about it, it's just really fun to help people pick the gear out. That's going to help them be, um, you know, if I go to the places that I go to with the wrong gear, I'm going to lose my life. Yeah. And um, if I can help you be a little bit more warm and dry and quiet and successful through my own testing and steer you in the right direction with either your maximum funds or your limited funds, um, I, I think it's a really fun thing to do. We did talk about um, wearing the correct gear. I mean, you'll you'll have the same experiences. I mean, you can have five different types of weather in the space of three hours in Scotland. And if you're caught out in the wrong gear, you can be in trouble pretty quickly. I mean, yeah. o- only in our winter here, which our winters, they're bad. They're not really that bad. We lost quite a few people's lives on the hills. Yeah, o- over, And that's just... The, some of it was avalanches, and others were just people going up with the wrong kit. Ill-prepared. Ill-prepared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I-, I did it once in Alaska. Uh, it's an embarrassing story. Uh, it's okay, tell it, tell it anyway, don't <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll tell it, I'll tell it. I have, I have, I have no pride. But I um, was hunting doll sheep with a friend of mine named Frank Harris. He's a wildlife biologist, fisheries biologist. And uh, we killed this really big fancy ram. Uh, he was the only one hunting. I just literally, I flew myself up to Alaska on my own money, bought my own gear, because I just wanted to backpack with him and just help him carry the sheep out, because I couldn't afford to go on a sheep hunt. But I wanted to go on a sheep hunt, and he had drawn a tag because he's an Alaska resident. Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to go along. Yeah. So I go up there, and uh, we killed this big ram on like the eighth day of the hunt. It's beautiful. Uh, we killed him. We hiked him back to camp. Then we got back to camp at like 4 a.m. We slept. We ate like pigs because now we, now we didn't have to conserve our food. So we ate like two backpacking dinners for dinner. Uh, we slept. The next morning we got up. It was beautiful, sunny, bluebird day. Uh, 70 degrees, and we just put on our lightest gear, packed the ram up, and hiked it out to Anchorage, the area that we were hunting. There's no airplanes allowed. It's a walk-in area only, so we had to hike about uh, 16 miles to get into the hunting area. Okay. So we hiked out the 16 miles, 
and uh, brought the sheep to the taxidermist, brought the meat to the processor, went to this awesome pizza place and had a beer and ate a pizza. And the next day, we're still wearing our really like backpacking gear and we didn't, ta- we didn't carry rain gear out with us. And so as we were heading back into the mountains that day, that was pretty nasty. But we're young guys, we're, we're tough guys, you know, and, and uh, so we tried to make it uh, the 16 miles. And we did make it, but um, we very nearly lost our lives. And uh, towards the last, like, probably three or four miles, um, neither of us could f- feel our legs underneath us at all. And if we weren't staring down, um, we couldn't even take a logical step because we, we literally couldn't feel our legs at all. So we had to stare at the ground and, and then we just kept talking to each other. We'd pick an area that was probably 30 or 40 yards ahead of us. And we kept just saying, I bet you can't make it to that rock. And so then we try to make it to that rock. And I bet you can't make it to that bush. And we did that all the way to the tent, uh, stripped down naked, got into our sleeping bags and still shivered for probably eight or nine hours before we recovered enough to uh, consume some food some hot tea and uh, pack all of our gear up the next day and, and leave. But uh, we very, very nearly lost our lives. We couldn't communicate by the time we reached the tent. We couldn't walk and we couldn't uh, speak. Uh, uh, we were shuddering too too much in our voices. To, uh, so it was a, a fantastic lesson learned. Wow. Was, there, was there any point in that, that last part where you were heading towards camp where you just thought, I'm actually I'm not that sure whether I'm going to be able to make it? Yes, and we had to drop about 1,200 feet to the camp, and our tent was a um, a Sierra Designs uh, little two-person tent, and it was uh, like a gold-yellow color. And I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make a statement, but it would have been very difficult to make it to that tent if we couldn't see it the whole time mm-hmm, okay. from the mountaintop. Yeah. So we could see it. It was probably an additional two miles away. We had to drop 1,200 feet. Um, but when we started to descend that 1200 feet, uh, it sure felt like we weren't going to make it. And we kept trying to each one of us, as we would fail mentally, we try to talk the other one into sitting down, right? Which would have been our death sentence. And so as one of us would try to convince the other, then the other person would say, no, 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 we have to just, let's just make it to that log, you know, that rock. There were no logs, there's no trees, but, um, yeah, it was brutal. It was a really, really bad decision. Just uh, sort of towards uh, getting towards wrapping up now, the expeditions that you go on are kind of they're unlike anything that really goes on here, with the exception of maybe some of the the high, more distant places across sort of the the middle of Europe. It takes a lot of preparation, both physically to get ready for something like that, but also in terms of in terms of kit. Um, Could you kind of talk us through what you do for that and the kit? that you not necessarily your uh, like clothing and stuff but all the peripheral kit that you have and then uh, as we get to the end i actually want to i want a, a little like, bit of camera geek with you and, and talk about uh filming gear just after you answer this question i want to know about tents so oh yes tents i, on, I yeah. definitely want to know about tents okay so um uh somebody actually just wrote me a letter and said that this is a statement that the navy seals use and i don't know if this is true or not because a friend of mine in alaska who um, it's just a really bad dude, uh, taught me early on that two is one and one is none. You'll hear me say that statement. And so when we bring a piece of gear on a trip, it has to be very important or multifunctional, right? So, and I'll give you a, for instance. Um, so we, obviously we bring, you know, when, when you're talking about, uh, your sleeping system, you have a tent and you have to pick a tent that's going to weather 
um, really nasty stuff depending on where you are. So you have your tent and you have your sleeping bag and then you need a waterproof sack to put your sleeping bag in when you're away from camp because you can't have your sleeping bag getting wet or you know or you you have a uh, you have a problem there but in addition to that we bring rain gear and we bring a complete down series um uh, that we use on the mountain when it gets cold when we're sitting there glassing all day we'll put on our down jackets and put our rain gear on over it and really uh your rain gear is your secondary tent because if your tent fails you can sleep in your rain gear you can um, live in your rain gear. If your sleeping bag fails, you can live in your down jacket and your down pants. And so these are multifunctional things. Um, to talk about the tent, I've absolutely fallen in love with, and this is only used in certain instances, but I've fallen in love with the Kafaru teepees. You yeah. guys have seen it yeah. in a lot of the photos that we use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they look amazing. Uh, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing because um, I can't tell you how many pilots I've flown with where they're like, yeah, where's your tent? And I say, you already loaded it. And they say, I, I didn't even see a tent. I say, yeah, you already loaded it, the pole, and the wood stove. And they say, no, 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 well, we didn't load a wood stove. And I say, yeah, you lo- that little green bag was a wood stove. And when we're doing some lower level hunts, I, I don't know that I would take one on a sheep hunt where we're camping up top, although I've had this thing. We've had it a couple of nights in sustained 60 to 70 mile an hour winds. You and see, it has stayed I think up. You see that in your, your trailer uh when you're you're writing and you're in the tent yeah oh it looks hellish outside (laughs) it is hellish outside we set it up in a really incredibly stupid area i we set it up in an area i say we i think it was my idea we're like this is so beautiful it's gonna film so well look at how beautiful it is and when it's a beautiful sun blue day you don't realize that you just set it up at the mouth of a wind tunnel (laughs) Which is exactly what we did. And we are about 200 miles, 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle um, in that piece. And, um, but that it's floorless, so we get to stroll in soaking wet, completely beat down. We get to go inside, start stripping down. We have our wood stove, which obviously um, one of the biggest things a wood stove does is when you get it fired up, when you get that barrel red hot and you hear the wood popping inside and you feel the heat on your face – no matter how bad of a day you've had or a bad 20 days you've had, that thing just warms your soul. Like you just feel it. And so we use that for warmth, for drying our clothes out, for heating our water, for helping us heat our food up. And so that's kind of our secondary cooking stove um, as, a, as secondarily to what we use with either our jet boil or we use a Primus stove or our uh, MSR just sent me their new um their new system for cooking and i'm really excited to use that so that's we use so MSR. You, that, yeah we we've been using msr i have since i was about 15 <laughs> yeah so i've used msr my entire life as well but um i've always used a dragonfly stove but they just sent me their container system okay. um they probably want to hit me in the head with a hammer right now because i can't think of the name of it but um <laughs> We can we can put it in the description. We'll find it. it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll save your I, save your bacon there. I five MSR. <laughs> so um, so uh, but you see where I'm going here, and so our clothing system has to be um, very refined to wool against the skin. Uh, maybe another layer of wool that's a little bit heavier, so we can play with uh, temperature ranges. A down layer, and then rain gear. I never bring a jacket. Um, obviously, I bring pants. Uh, my favorite pants in the world are Sitka makes a pants called mountain pants that have knee pads in them, and they're just absolutely fantastic. And I put those things through hell and back, and they've really stood up. But so you have your clothing, your sleep system, 
Um, food is almost always, you have to really start to look at calories, but uh, we're almost always looking at like a mountain house granola and blueberries with added um, um, oatmeal to it in the morning and maybe a protein bar. Lunch, I get a lot of flack for lunch from my crew because lunch is like a candy bar and like a protein bar. We, 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 we often skip lunch and it's really bad actually. We'll just yeah. go the whole day. You know, we'll have breakfast and then... Like t- you say though, protein hey, bar. Oh yeah, yeah we'll have a breakfast yes. bar and that's it. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, we regret it. Some, <laughs> something, something to make sure you're getting some fuel, right? Yeah. And then dinner is almost always, until we kill, dinner is um, each person eats a two-serving mountain house. And then in the States, we have these little four-ounce packages of Idaho... Uh, flavored potatoes, uh, mashed potatoes. We'll each add a whole package, a whole family serving of those to our meal. So like you can't even close the bag. It is gangster. It's like it's like holding a human head in a bag and you just get, like throw this thing down. And then uh, we each share a dessert at night, either raspberry crumble or blueberry cheesecake from Mountain House as well. And then uh, and then hot cocoa and tea. It's, sorry, you know, is, a- is Mountain House a brand? I've, uh, it's just I've not heard of it. It is. Mountain House is a brand. They are the, um, they're the leaders in the world for, for freeze-dried food. It's absolutely uh, okay. fantastic. It's, um, you know, it's, it's plum full of sodium. It's not, you don't want to eat it every night at home, right? You don't want to be like, oh, this is beef stroganoff. It's good for me. You'll, you know, you'll probably die in <laughs> six months. But as far as camping goes and as far as I think they do a ton with like um, – Tsunami relief, oh, okay. earthquake relief, natural disasters, mountain houses. I think they're always very present when when there's things like that, and they help make sure people get uh, clean water and food. and And um, and so that's our you know that's our clothing system, that's our sleeping system, that's our food system, and then beyond that we have our weapons. And um, um, you know I always fly with two bows, leave a bow back at base camp or a bow back at a hangers, and and then I always have an emergency beacon. Um, that I wear on me at all times, uh, Delorme, and then uh, I can also text messages to my family and friends if I need to, and then hit SOS if I need to, and then um, we have our survival gear. We always have um, fire starting stuff. It's really funny when I talk to people from Discovery or National Geographic, they always say, oh, you're a survival expert. And I say, no, no, I'm the furthest thing from a survival expert because I bring all this stuff with me to be a lazy survival expert. Like when I need to start a fire, guess what? I'm starting a fire. So I have my little graphite sparker. Yeah. I bring this little stuff called uh, fire paste. It looks like toothpaste, but you can put a little, little, little tiny bit on wet wood, get it started, get your kindling, get your fire started. Uh, your safety blanket. Um, can't even tell you how many nights I've spent on the mountain. Wind, rain, cold, blowing, and you got your safety blanket to put around you. Uh, your fire starting stuff. Um, one thing I haven't been taking with me, and I'm not recommending this to people. I just have gotten really lazy about taking water purification stuff. Um, I basically live with Giardia. I've had Giardia so many times now. I'm probably uh, two thirds a parasite. <laughs> we don't really have that problem here. Yeah, no, we, we, we just we're lucky that clean water. Yeah, it's yeah. clean. So. I mean, I mean, people buy the bottled water that we drink <laughs> drink from when we're up in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's why. Yeah, that's, so that that's that's really funny. And like, where do we go sheep hunting and stuff like that? The water's like that, right? Yeah. It's absolutely perfect and pristine. If I'm on a moose hunt and we're going to be drinking out of beaver ponds, <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of goodies in yeah, there. Yeah, I can imagine. So, <laughs> Yeah, um, but uh, but that's what it boils down to: is your safety kit, your hunting kit, your sleeping gear, 
uh, your clothing, and uh, and then beyond that, of course, we have to carry uh, two million pounds of camera gear. But um, <laughs> you know, and then and, and of course, we have to prepare to disassemble our animal. Right? If we're on a moose yeah. hunt, uh, we'll be killing an animal that is somewhere around uh, thirteen hundred to eighteen hundred pounds. Mm. So we have to disassemble that animal, put it on a backpack, <clears throat> and you know, it's going to be at least. 14 round trips with 120 to 130 pounds in your pack. Phenomenal. Yeah, so it's a lot of... Yeah. And just uh, the, the, the people who are not into the, the, the camera gear can tune out now. No, they, no they can't. They, can they they gotta, no, they've got to listen. Oh, they got... Okay, you're being forced <laughs> to listen to the end. Yeah. But it, yeah. I imagine that, you know, over the years that you've been doing this, the... Obviously, the the actual type of cameras, but the the total package of gear that you guys use to create the spectacle and you know cinematic, you know beautiful films that you create has changed and evolved over the years. Because I mean, you've just gone to a, a lot of length to describe how you're weight cutting and minimalizing. It must be the same thing with uh, all of your camera equipment. Just judging same. by our experience, I mean, we saw same. earlier we saw earlier that you use Light Pro gear. And the only yes. reason why we use that is because we've got to carry the damn thing on our back. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it makes only makes sense that you have a carbon fiber crane. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's, awesome. that's, that's, you're exactly right. We find the bells and whistles that will get the shots for us. You know, for um, our camera kit changes every hunt, right? It's, it's constantly kind of evolving and changing. We have filmed 99% of everything that you gentlemen have watched. Uh, that the world has watched, we have filmed on broken down 5D3s, 5D Mark III's. Um, We're a big 99, fan of 5D Mark III's. That, that's that's yeah. what we film on. Yeah. yeah. And we, we have four of them. We have broken all four of them a number of times. Um, and, and Canon, luckily, uh, is very good about fixing them and sending them back no matter where, what haunts of the world we are in. Um, you know, and, and, it, and, and as far as like specialty shots, we start looking at things like steady cams but uh, you're finding one that's compact enough you can't take the best one you have to take a small one that you can work with um and then uh, for years it was funny because people would say what drone do you use and i'd say well that's you know that's me holding onto the belt of one of the photographers and swinging him out over a cliff because literally that was our drone uh, you know when we needed really big shots and then um but really it boils down to um cameras the Canon 5D Mark III's. We use different ones now. We're starting to play with some Sony's and things like yeah. that. It comes down to lenses and taking uh, yeah. the best lenses you can and some varieties of having big lenses to multifunctional lenses to macro lenses. And it's um, the biggest thing is, the number one thing is uh, having that problem-solving gene to get that shot no matter what it takes and realizing that the tiniest little details can take somebody there and, and, and take them along. And so there isn't, um, you know, there isn't a piece of gear or a piece of magic or anything like that that is going to sell your work, either the story. You know, if you gave uh, Steven Spielberg six iPhones, he would melt your mind in an afternoon because yeah. they don't care no. um, about the camera. They care about the story. Yeah, no, it's absolutely absolutely true what you're saying and we we say this quite a lot you can have all the gear in the no, world you can yeah but it doesn't mean that you can put a story together all the and gear no idea all the gear no idea yeah uh, we, we probably have the worst camera kit in the outdoor industry 
we probably have we're, the we're smallest, using the same as you so. <laughs> <laughs> but Most no what do you say is it's so true and I, i'm not going to say this just because we're speaking to you now but i I don't think there's any any one, and when I say one, I mean you, the whole group of guys that put your your shows together. I don't think there's anybody right now that has has quite achieved what you have from a visual perspective. Yeah, from a cinematic point of yeah, view. I, yeah, the, what, another guy who I have a huge amount of time for, and I'd love to speak to him one day, is Branlon Shockey. I think what he is doing is is amazing, and uh, I have a massive amount of respect for him in his storytelling. I mean, his whole family are, are you know obviously massively involved in it but i think he he doesn't get enough credit for what those guys do uh because i think he should get all the credit he's a genius as far as i'm concerned but you know uh, and and he learned it all from youtube yeah he did <laughs> um yeah, but yeah so yeah. the the ability to tell the stories in the way that you, you guys are doing it and you know what rob brandlin is doing now is is i think and what we believe is the way that we can cross that boundary between what what hunters are doing and expressing the information and the education and the feeling and the emotion to those people who have become disconnected it uh, disconnected with it not necessarily through any fault of their own but just through the human evolution I mean, everything you were talking about I, i've shown and byron shown uh, multiple amounts of my friends who don't hunt um your films and they've just gone wow like we don't actually care about the hunting, but just wow in in terms of the the cinematography. So and the and the end result is off the back of that is usually because they enjoyed just watching it as yeah. a, as a masterpiece. If you and like. the story as well, they take they take not necessarily all of it, but they're taking something from it, and that's that's the key. Little uh, steps. I, I want to ask, how long does it take you roughly? to put one of these films together i know it takes you a long time to film the actual thing but when you're getting down to the actual editing of it how long does it take you um several months several months where we're uh you know we'll come up with a skeleton and then um and then we used to pay for music uh like with the rivers divide some of the music we made in the rivers divide some of it we paid uh paid for same with terra nova uh, uh but we come up with a skeleton we as a group review it uh, I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this shot. I like this. Um, and Kyle is a genius uh, storyteller, and he really knows how to edit um, to really take the audience through the emotions that I'm feeling as the hunter or or um, or, or whatever we're doing. Um, but um, it, it takes several months, and then now we're um, we have a full-time musician that works with us, and so we uh, score all the music custom for the I, film. I like to say we've got a full-time musician. We kind of do. <laughs> We're very lucky that uh, one of my best friends from school, his dad is a brilliant musician, and he does a lot of folk music and Scottish music, Great. Along, along with that, which fits very well with the stuff we've been doing recently. He was number one in the Australian chart for a for, year. For a year <laughs> with for his country music. <laughs> Um, that's awesome <laughs> so he lives just down the road from us and he's literally been, over the hill from us he's it's, been incredibly really cool. yeah, he's been writing most of our music yeah, so helpful us. so yeah it's been such it's been such fun. a uh, such a strong component and the fact that you have somebody that you can sit down and, and pour yourself out to is um makes all the difference in the world well, we, we, we show yeah. him the clips and then he pictures everything in his head and then he comes back you know two days three days goes, later now this piece this is what i was imagining this is what i think this would work with you know you guys are coming off the hill and you're doing this and the clouds <laughs> are doing this and you can see the sea down below you and we're like 
yeah, okay, that's this scene. Yeah, yeah that, that's that's perfect. And I imagine he's, yeah. all, he's almost writing the storyline for us with just <laughs> the music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same. Uh, same. Uh, I mean, Casey Olson is my is our musician, and he's covered in tattoos, spiky hair. <laughs> I'll guarantee you. I'll bet you my life is wearing flip flops right now, and probably like an ACDC T-shirt. Has no idea of anything of hunting. Um, I don't think he could kill a mosquito, but he can just watch a piece of footage. And he'll ask me a couple of questions, and get he'll get my tone, my feeling, and then he'll just do it. Amazing. Well, for for the our listeners that are on YouTube, this is what Donny's uh, uh, DVDs look like here. So, we'll, where's we'll, the best place to um, find out what you're doing and also grab your your content, your DVDs? And uh, are you gonna make stuff available for download? At I some think point, yeah, I, fa- I think I saw you had started putting stuff because when originally yep. when i first ordered these there, there was couple, no i was only a few months ago really. i couldn't yeah. find anywhere yep. that you could digitally download it but to be honest i prefer a dvd in my hand sure so. sure it's it's really funny because we get um um we but by the way we started doing streaming uh we made that available i think at the beginning of uh at the end of march beginning of april somewhere okay. in there so people have been able to stream um, to their devices for uh, five or six weeks now. Um, and so many people would write me a letter, and it just made me giggle because these people would write, uh, h- humans as a whole love to, once they take that next tick into technology, they love to act like the old technology is just like so beneath them. You know? And so these people would write me and they'd say, I don't even know anyone that owns a DVD player anymore. <laughs> I, I I, I haven't even heard of a store selling one since 1984. I still so have a tape player, please. so I'm, I'm pretty old. <laughs> yeah, and so it, it's really funny because still our DVD sales still rival uh, streaming so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's really fantastic to see because we pour a little bit of our, our ourselves into the jacket covers and yeah. the artwork and the photography. and and uh, So yeah, they can go to DonnieVincent.com. Or they can find me on Facebook or Instagram and and all that jazz. I I think just for our listeners that are in the UK, I think this is an American region, so you will probably need a computer to play it. Just uh, so people. No, it's it's region it's region free. It They're is region free. Okay, uh, yeah, even better, even better. So it can yeah. play. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we I I, I sent the DVD this morning to the Czech Republic. <laughs> Yeah, we've sold our DVDs now in 49 different countries, something nice. like that. I actually saw on Twitter yesterday about three posts with just various people that actually listened to our show, and they didn't even know you were coming on because we haven't actually told people until tonight. Until tonight yeah. um, and someone yeah, that watched our show just tweeted, and they had both of your DVDs, and I was just like, bloody hell. <laughs> and incidentally... <laughs> uh, we were speaking to uh, Marina, Gibson. Marina Gibson um, and she, about she's... fishing, and yeah, she's a, a but an hour before we a, an hour before you. we spoke to you, and at the very end of the conversation, when we went off air, she went because we were talking about hunting, and she went, "You know who you guys need to go and check out," and we're like, "Who?" And she's like, "Donnie Vincent." <laughs> oh really? Yeah, <laughs> no joke. And we said, "Well, we've got a surprise for you because we're interviewing him in about." 20 minutes <laughs> she goes, yeah. no way You're like, he's no calling way. every phone number in the uk as we speak yeah <laughs> you, you probably got hold of a few people like, who's this it's like you know <laughs> no yeah. it's brilliant but look donnie i mean we've uh, we've taken up uh, enough of your time we really appreciate you coming on and we know how busy you are and 
it's uh, just marvelous that we've had a chance to have this conversation. And I think there's been some amazing takeaways from the discussions that we've we've had. Oh, thank you. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, the offer to come on. And if you gentlemen ever need, uh, ever want to do another one or ever need anything else, uh, certainly just let us know. That is very, very kind of you. But uh, we uh, wish you the best of luck with everything that you're planning and is going to be happening this year. And we wait with bated breath to see the next yeah, film. Yeah, your next film. Yeah, it'll be uh, November. Well, well, I think we're going to come out with it like the second or third week of November. That sounds so like an be, almost uh, perfect Christmas present for some people. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, please. I have what we have one more uh, trip to do to wrap it all up, and it happens in October. And then after that, uh, it's going to be. Uh, we're pretty stoked. Awesome, Donnie. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys, so much. Well, thank you very much for listening to the show. I hope everyone took something away from that because I certainly did. And it was a really enjoyable show to make. And Donnie is such a cool guy. Yeah, no, he, he genuinely is a really nice guy. We spoke to him a little bit before and a bit after we went off air and a really nice guy to speak to. And we, are, we were a massive fan of the work that he does already. And I, I can't wait to see what he brings out later this year. <laughs> I know three years in the making i know it's, it's bound to be epic i have no doubt there we have a new competition we do at the start of the show we announced the winner of the last competition which was for a bushnell hd trophy cam this week running for two weeks time and we will announce the winner out on the next podcast we have a surefire p3x fury tactical led flashlight for those people watching on youtube you can see, you can it, see here it currently because i'm holding it up to the webcam but we will put a picture up during the week on Facebook as well, so you can see what it looks like. Yeah, it's. We um, won't be testing this one because it's still in the packet. Well, I think we should. I think we should open the packet okay. and test it. All right. Okay. I think what we'll do is in the next couple of days we'll put up a video showing what this can do, just to entice you. Uh, and the way to enter that is slightly different to last week. So listen up. We, we're going to make you work for it. We do. Mm. So we're going to do a picture competition. So yep. there's two ways. Now, listen carefully. We're going to keep this simple. This is very simple. I don't want anybody commenting saying, I can't figure out how to do this. Two ways to enter. The first way is find the pinned post on Facebook, which will be the Donnie Vincent podcast post. Which loads of you did last time. Yeah. And simply share your most epic and awesome outdoors picture. In the comments, just add your picture. That's simple. Oh, and tag a friend. Yeah. Tag a friend and add your picture. It can be anything. Just make it awesome because we're gonna we're gonna sit down with a couple of our mates and we're gonna we're gonna judge this and whoever has the most awesome picture is gonna be the winner. But if you don't listen to Facebook, we know there are some. You don't listen to Facebook if you don't have have Facebook Facebook, because we know there's people that don't. Then email us. Email us your picture. We'll put it up and you will be and we'll put it on the the Facebook page. And the email address is Daryl. Podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. It will be in the description. Yes. So, so simple, really simple. Facebook user, add your picture, tag a friend to the pin post. If you're not a Facebook user, then send us in your picture to the email address. Simple as That's that. It. And we will add you to the draw just like we did this time. And someone can win. And the there might even be a surefire. second place, p- place prize. Yes, there more than likely will be. But we will tell you about that when we put the video up on the Surefire. Yes, we will. Um, but it looks like a really smart... Really smart torch. And these modern LEDs are quite spectacular. But we're going to actually test this and let everybody see. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think we're done. We're done. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Join us again in two weeks' time where we're going to be at the Northern Shooting Show. Yes, indeed. We did a live podcast at the Northern Shooting Show with half a dozen people. It was actually, we've never had so many people on mm. a podcast before. And we covered a variety of really important topics, all related to the countryside and shooting world. Um, a lot of sort of serious discussion going on. Yep. Uh, what was I going to say? Keep the messages coming in, guys, and the emails on suggestions of shows and so on, because everything that you've been putting in, we we do work on making a show about it. We work on getting guests. Uh, Donnie was a, get, a suggestion, and he's on the show. We've got some awesome guests coming up in the next few weeks and months as well. And keep reviewing, guys, on iTunes. Yeah. Keep the, they, they've dropped off actually the last couple of weeks the they, they have the reviews so keep review keep reviewing the the show and we can keep on top and we can be the the best yes we, we, we made uh top 16 in the outdoor chart so keep keep uh keep, keep those reviews it. coming in five star you know you want to this podcast is brought to you by the scottish association for country sports uh best place to check them out and i encourage you to do so is on their facebook page they have new information, all the latest stuff, stuff going up on a daily basis. And if you really have an issue or you want to find out about joining them to support um, support all manner of uh, countryside issues, which we it need to, to, to fight for. doesn't have to be in the for. UK, guys. They have many members abroad. No, it doesn't have to be in Scotland. But yes, that too. Yeah. Scotland and England. Well, we've and got many people that listen abroad. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, feel free to share because it's all fighting the good fight to protect shooting and field sports and hunting yep um yeah so give them a call thanks very much. much